Jack, you can also just uh, request a uh, invite to use your microphone, and she can turn you on that way. That's what she did for me. <laughs> Sorry, I should have said turn you on that way. Well, I mean, although you know, also that, but <laughs> this has turned out great. Yeah, <laughs> I've already embarrassed myself. Very rational discussion. Maybe yeah. I just don't do it for Jack. After after that episode of the uh, the uh, the weirdos, uh, you know the sex in the uh, far right there, uh, definitely uh, definitely uh, turned everybody off. I think so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you talking about the Evo Psych episode that I did? Or? Yeah, that one. Yeah, all the all the all the very very sexy talk from uh, the likes <laughs> of Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro <laughs> and uh, all the rest of them. Look, who doesn't <laughs> want to hear about Ben Shapiro talking about moist? moist vaginas like isn't that what everyone wants no 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 i know and i'm sorry i did warn you all hello can you hear me now hello jack hello we can hear you hello good somebody turned you on well yes yes i won't say who because i wouldn't want to embarrass them but it's (laughs) daniel of course (laughs) i knew it all right, now uh, that everyone's turned on, we can begin. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. We are here uh, with Jack and Daniel of the wonderful I Don't Speak German podcast. And you've got me too, Ina, of the Polite Conversations podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm expecting that to be extremely polite discussion where nobody will be rude and uh, we'll talk about civility the whole time. Imagine a more chill, lo-fi, beat to, uh, study to version of the Lex Friedman podcast. That's basically what I expect this to be. <laughs> Just, you know, the, like, we're, we're, like, the volume never goes up or down by more than three decibels at a time. That's, that's clearly how we, uh, how we roll here. That- that's definitely how we roll. Yep. I don't speak, uh, I don't change my tone very much, and uh, I'm very, very rational. And, uh, you know, got got a good skull shape. I just checked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, got, we are here to. You've got that particular bump on your skull that stands for politeness. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's why I do what I do. And we are here to talk about the very polite conversation, the very polite topics of monarchy, misogyny, and uh, multiracial Nazis, which people have a hard time getting their heads around. So, yeah, what do we want to talk about first? Jack, since your country went through this... Um, this strange thing, like where people were dressed all funny. And what the hell was happening over there? There was a Grim Reaper somewhere. Oh yeah. Now they're fucking changing. They're changing our money because of that. Yep, yep. You'll be all across the world. People will have a different odd face on their money um, from now yeah, on. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Gr- the Grim Reaper turned up to the um, the coronation. Apparently, I've seen the footage, and it's deeply, deeply eerie. Uh, a robed figure just well, he sort of runs. Actually, he sort of runs across. Uh, uh, I don't know the the uh, 
Oh God, it's been a long time since I knew the the names for bits of cathedrals and churches, the transept or the nave or some such thing. Anyway, um, and uh, yeah, of course they're they they you know capital T they are telling us it was just a verger, but yeah yeah right, we all know a what, what it, a what sorry a, a verger. It's a again it's it's a sort of um, church functionary. I think in in little churches he just does the gardening or something like that. <laughs> So what was he supposed to be doing in this black robe carrying this scythe-like thing? There's so many people around in in silly clothes that it's hard to know. (laughs) It's um, I don't know. You're not kidding. I started started off on the internet talking about Doctor Who, you know, and um, people people who know Doctor Who back in, you know, proper old-fashioned Doctor Who will know that it's just a smorgasbord of people in silly clothes and silly hats. and what you don't realize is, it, as such, it's a very, very accurate representation of Britain, because that that really is just Britain for you, uh, especially, you know, official high status <laughs> Britain. It's people in very silly robes and very silly hats, um, walking and, and talking in very unnatural ways. And that's really right. what, that's, what the, that's what the coronation looked like to me. It looked like an old episode of Doctor Who, you know, with everybody in their strange clothes. And uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> Why not have a strange, well, mysterious cloaked figure in the background? Um, yeah, that was probably the best part about it. I think um, I, I saw think these like official official portraits that they released, and I had to <laughs> check and check and double check. Like, how can that be real? Why are they so bad? Like, I've seen photographers like on Instagram do much better portraits. These just look like cheap and like satire like the shade of purple is so terrible and i love purple it's just like a gross purple like a dollar store purple it really is weird isn't it they look incredibly cheap and silly and uh i don't know maybe it's just because it's happening in 2023 you know the last time we did yeah. this was <laughs> 1952 1953 something like that and it, Maybe th- maybe the film stock was different, and maybe the Queen, as a young woman, just had more panache than old Charles. I don't know, but I think it's just that that was nineteen fifty, whatever it whatever it was, and this is twenty twenty three, and think the whole thing just looks different now. It, we we kind of yeah. we can we can see how tatty and silly the whole thing is, and they do look ridiculous. As I said on Twitter, you know, I challenge anybody without the filters of ideology to look at those photographs without just laughing because they look ridiculous and there's a teddy bear that they're selling a coronation bear that's like what fucking 400 pounds or something oh yeah who yeah who buys this <laughs> who buys this stuff british people that's <laughs> british people buy this stuff that's who. <laughs> I can think of so many better ways to spend that much money. Oh. Just take it out to the garden and set it on fire, really. But yeah. yeah, probably a better way to use it, honestly. Like, fuck, $400 for a teddy bear. And it's, crazy, it's just the it? whole thing. It seemed very, very odd in 2023. And uh, yes. Yeah. Good I job. I don't think anybody has an. There's not much real respect for the institution going around. There's there's a lot of enthusiasm, um, although there's much less than there was back in the day. Like even in the 70s, when you had the Queen's 
jubilee golden jubilee or silver jubilee or whatever it was you know the, it was a big thing and even when i was a kid i was dragged out of school to watch the uh, the wedding of the uh, prince charles and diana you know and um but there was a great big party and we all had cakes and stuff like that and it's not like that anymore people there's no i mean you know there's plenty of plenty of crowds on the coronation day but they're they're pretty thin compared to even like 20 30 years ago the public are more and more um there's still a depressing number of people impressed by it but fewer and fewer all the time and i think part of the problem yeah, is that people just people just don't respect this current lot maybe maybe you know i don't think they ever really had much much uh, grounds to respect them even way back when but these we we just know too much about them we just know too much about who these people really are now and especially like in conjunction with what's happening around like everyone is going through tough times financially and oh, yeah. there's this huge flamboyant display of just like throwing money at really ridiculous things and it just seems in such bad taste yeah well we funded got more... everyone we got more people eating out of food banks than than ever before. You know, food banks are and and food bank food banks are being closed down for the coronation weekend or whatever, and uh, you know, homeless people are being clen cleansed off the streets to make room for the so that everything looks nice for the cameras. And I don't know, it's just uh, I mean, I'm, I I laugh about it, but really, it is a, it is obscene. The whole thing is an obscene display. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I believe I saw a Dave Rubin type um, coronation grifter as well. It's <laughs> like, even though I'm on the left, this is why I really like the monarchy. And <laughs> just. Oh, yeah. There's, nev there's never any shortage of that sort of thing, particularly not among the British pun punditocracy. That grift can be transplanted so beautifully and seamlessly onto anything almost. Like I'm I'm on the left, I promise. And this is why this thing that doesn't seem like it's from the left, uh, or relates to the left is, is very good. Trust me, I'm on the left, I promise, I promise. That's and right. everyone and people people just continue to buy it. Yeah, and it's such a weird formulation if you think about it, isn't it? I'm on the left. That's why you can you can believe me when I say that this opinion I have that's very much not on the left is actually right. Well, that that yeah. doesn't stand. <laughs> but we're all supposed yeah, because... we're, we're supposed to have this. We're supposed to all believe in this fiction of national unity on some level, you know. And it, it's just not a it's just not a real thing. And I think, I think part of the role that the monarchy or the Royal family, whatever you want to call them has played in this country for so long has been to kind of prop up this tottering, limping idea of, of a, a common national identity. But I just, you know, it's just, it's no surprise to anybody who knows my politics, but I just don't see any intelligible way in which you can talk about an us that includes me and Prince Charles, as I insist upon calling him, because as far as I'm concerned, that's just his name. <laughs> right, right. I'm sure there's a lot of people who feel like that, right? Yeah. That's from different planet. Yeah. Well, they are. They live in a different world. Yeah. And I think this... What this has inadvertently done is it's really showcased that to lots of people. I think an awful lot of people watching have really had that brought home to them in common, as I say, with learning an awful lot about them 
uh, some of their dark, you know, darker and nastier secrets being becoming common currency, particularly with the whole Prince Andrew thing. You know, see, it's not just that Prince Andrew was doing what he was doing. It's that it's to see him and the rest of them deeply involved in this international uh, group of people that are all going back and forth on each other's private jets and doing business deals with each other. You know, Prince Prince Andrew hobnobbing around with uh, American billionaires and before you even get to this, the, the disgusting things that they're doing, it's just, it takes the, um, it just makes them look like what they are. They're increasingly visible for what they are, which is basically a kind of international firm, you know, that has a particular client relationship with the British state. That's really all it is. Right. So they're like in, in the era of social media, I guess like that, mystique they've been like completely demystified right that 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 mysterious aura of royalty or whatever that magic is just not around them anymore when you heard like you know what prince andrew has been doing um you know charles's conversations about wanting to be a tampon uh <laughs> That yeah, is exactly. the one thing I knew about the royal family growing up as a child. It was <laughs> the one thing that I gathered throughout the entire 80s about the royal family was the tampon bit. And I think that's only because Saturday Night Live did it. So, you know. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so it's just not got that same, uh, I guess, appeal anymore. And, you know, when I was a kid in Saudi... Uh, they actually came, they came to my school and they told us that the prince is here. And as a little kid, like, right, obviously all the kids are very excited. The prince, there's a prince at our school. That's amazing. Mm. Oh, sorry, kid. Only British children can go and see the prince. So they pulled out the British kids (laughs) out of the club. (laughs) And they left the rest of us there. Oh no, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. So you were that's you were something. cheated of the the opportunity to to stand in the presence of Prince Charles. <laughs> that's that's right, a real right. shame. It's a real shame. <laughs> Looking back on it, it's not such a great loss. But at the time, I don't know when you're six or something, it feels kind of sucky to be excluded. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what the whole thing depends. It kind of depends upon us all getting our development arrested round about that age when we're, we're still old enough to think, Oh wow, a prince, you know, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Don't grow up any further. It's kind of like religion, right? I hate to say it. And I hate to be the always picking on religion person, but like, that's kind of what happens when you're a kid, it's all magical and amazing. But then you, when you grow up and you like, look at scripture you demystify the text and uh, it's it kind of loses that magic and you're like wait a minute what does this verse say again yeah yeah i mean it's it's always it's always the thing isn't it the more you learn the more it takes uh, the more it takes the shine off the the things that you're supposed to be impressed by uh that's really it right Learning too yeah. much is, is, a, is a terrible curse for these things. <laughs> Careful. We don't want to sound like, uh, you know, the IDW. Look, look when, 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 when our brains get too big and we just know too much, then nothing well, satisfies the, us anymore. 
that that bunch should be more you know i don't know intuitively i feel like that bunch should be more likely to be well uh you see in evolutionary psychology we know that humans are you know hardwired through their genetic development to to have this instinct to worship uh, uh magical figures above them and that's why we have hereditary monarchies and you can't get rid of it and and it's just just natural for us and you shouldn't try you shouldn't try to get rid of it because that's just you being a fanatical leftist who's trying to socially engineer human nature and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right you miss the lobsters you got to put lobsters in there we got to have the hierarchies yeah. because lobsters yeah well as we know lobsters have uh, royal families and kings and queens and so <laughs> we have to have them too yes exactly absolutely all right so now that we've talked about silly clothes and silly hats and uh yep. kings and things that's, that's monarchy thoroughly disposed of <laughs> what shall we talk about next <clears throat> there's some less uh I guess we can't laugh as much. Not as no. That's topic. the comparatively harmless bit, isn't it? That we've just done, which is not harmless uh, at all. But still, yeah, and yeah. So, what was the next bit? So, the, the next M, the next M word was misogyny, wasn't it? Which I think um, that was on the list right, because right. of the the, the E. Jean Carroll case and the reaction to the verdict. Yeah, so much more. But go on. You've you've got more like you're more up to date on that and been reading about it so well not not really to be honest but i mean uh yes yeah, e. carroll uh, i think most people probably know the background she, it was about it was in the 80s i think the the event happened and she she came out about it publicly a few a couple of years back when she published a book in which the accusation was made that trump um, spoil, uh, not spoilers, I beg your pardon, trigger warnings, everybody, because I'm going to talk about sexual assault and stuff like that. Um, but she, she made the accusation in the book that Trump uh, raped her in, um, I think it was a changing room in um, Berg, Bergdorf's in New York City. And um, Trump, of course, immediately said she's lying. Don't know this woman. Never heard of her. She's just lying. And uh, she she's um, uh, sued him for defamation because that's defamation of her character. And she's just won the case. Uh, although I, I think one of the one of the disgusting, the many disgusting things that happened in the immediate aftermath was that the jury didn't find there was enough evidence to say that Trump actually raped her. They found that there was. They, they found that he sexually assaulted her, um, and they found in favour of of her pretty much in every respect, except that they said, you know, we can't be a hundred percent certain that that he raped her. I mean, I don't know personally. I don't know how you doubt it for a second, but there you go. But um, yeah, and uh, Trump, of course, just immediately did exactly the same thing again. He just said, yeah, as he's been saying all the way through the trial, I don't know her. It's a put-up job. It's a, it's an, it's the witch hunt. It's the greatest witch hunt in American history, um, implying that she's being um, funded by high-ranking Democrats and George Soros and, you know, all the usual bullshit. And, and of uh, course, CNN, CNN sorry, invited him on. CNN invited him well, yeah. on to feel that again and again and mock her and just i hope she sues him again and wins again but that was really yeah. disgusting 
Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the GOP's um, reaction to the verdict was as revolting as, as you can imagine it was. Um, and then the thing that just happened, you know, between now and us deciding to talk about this was that he, he went on his so-called town hall on CNN. And that's, that is just outrageous and shameful on so many levels, that, that thing, that event. Um, but um, one of one of the most particularly disgusting things about it was that he 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 repeated the defamation. He just lied about her again. Again, I said I don't know, you know, and he mocked her. He called her a wacko and all this sort of thing. And just with every with every utterance about the case, just downplayed it and laughed about it and made it into. And you know, he had an audience in there who were just laughing laughing their heads off so i don't think he made a single factual statement factual claim in the entire show that wasn't false and he spent pretty much the entire show mocking and belittling and insulting um this woman who's the victim at the very least a victim of his sexual assault uh and uh, yeah it was it was on uh, cnn to you know he was doing that to gales of laughter and it just goes to show we're still we're still doing this in 2023, you know, and in the in the in the trial itself, she's being cross examined by Trump's disgusting lawyer, Takapina. And he's, um, you know, were, were you flirting with him? Why didn't you scream? Why didn't you say no? All this same shit that that rape victims get. Um, and it's just it's so dispiriting and so depressing because you, you hear that and you think, really, we're still doing this now in 2023. We're still putting victims and survivors through. Why didn't you fight harder? Why didn't you scream louder, implying that you're kind of to blame? Yeah. It's, it makes you it makes you absolutely despair. Yeah, it's it's really depressing, and like just to see that even the media is it just doesn't learn anything, and they they just walked right into that, and I don't know what they were trying to do with that like half-assed pushback. If you look a little bit into the person that they had at the town hall pushing back at him, uh, that person has written all these like articles that kind of portray Trump in a positive light. Maybe that's the only way he agreed to it. Um, and I believe she also worked for the Daily Wire. I think I saw something like that as well. I think it was I think it was the Daily Caller. I think it was Tucker. Oh, Daily I think Caller. she worked for Tucker yeah. Carlson. Yeah. And she's um, she's promoted the essentially she's promoted all the uh, Alex Jones, you know George Soros conspiracy theories on the on the yeah. TV, and yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think he probably agreed. I think she was probably his choice, you know, from from a list of possibles, because and uh, that didn't and, like. And, and from some things I've seen, she's also dabbled in a little bit of anti-Arab racism. Oh yeah, well, who hasn't? Come on, <laughs> I kid, I kid. Yeah, I kid, but. We yeah, could just yeah, no, take that I, as red, shouldn't did, we? I'm afraid. Yeah, she did uh, some articles about like uh, these Syrian refugees. Are they hot or not? Something like that. Really, really gross. I think. And it's just like that. Really, this is the person that you chose to push back at Trump on this like really important town hall, and it didn't save her from being humiliated 
by Trump at all being such a kiss ass, right? And like he called her a nasty person and the audience yeah. laughed and it's just gross, just gross. Well, one of the ironies here, and I want to be clear about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I mean, I think the whole thing was, I think it was outrageous. I think it was reckless. I think it was damaging. I think it was, you know, totally ill-advised on every level. And I think she was, I think she's wrong to have agreed to do it. I think, you know, she's obviously um, ideologically pretty disgusting herself, etc. You know, all, all that I stipulate to. Even so, one of the ironies here is, that's probably the most um, hostile treatment I've ever seen Trump receive from a member of the American press, so to speak, the American media. That's probably the most pushback he's ever had face to face (laughs) from an American journalist. It's incredibly depressing. It is. It's incredibly depressing, but she did, you know, she did at least sort of, she pushed back a little bit, which is more than I've ever seen. Um, a little bit, but, it, but like half assed, really. Not, not too. Oh. Yeah, again, not too let me be clear. It was useless. It was completely useless. She completely soft pedaled it. And just the whole, the whole project of having, having him there at all was completely wrong and um, ill considered from the start. You know, they shouldn't have had him on. And she shouldn't have done it, the whole thing. But within the confines of that, he probably got a tougher time from her than I've ever seen any other journalist give him face to face. Which is uh, yeah, really saying something. You know, Jack. It reminded me a little bit of how you know, on a much smaller scale, we get frustrated at like say certain uh, types of IDW critics that mm-hmm. are like soft and gentle, but like are definitely you know critical and pushing back, so to say. But like all the criticism is like mostly toothless and it just kind of provides a, a reason for the IDW types to say, Hey, look, we engage with people that disagree with us. That's the function that it serves in my view. And uh, that's the function that that serves. It's like, look, Trump went on the opposite side there and, you know, he gave him such a hard time, even though, you know, he wasn't on his own uh, territory and they they tried to push back at him, but they couldn't. Yeah. Well, we saw it's exactly the same, I think. And we saw that like from Anderson Cooper um, the, the day after he was saying, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, he sounded to me like quite critical of his own of his own network, of his own bosses. But at the same time, he's saying you shouldn't shut yourself off in an ideological silo and not listen to people that you disagree with. And like, fuck you, Vanderbilt. We the problem here is not <laughs> that we're the problem here is not that we're unfamiliar with these people's arguments. OK, that's not the problem. In fact, as somebody said to me on Twitter, you ask your average leftist to describe the quote-unquote arguments of Trumpism, um, you're going to get more understanding and familiarity from them than you're going to get probably from most sort of, you know, of, of Trump's audience. Because they've just got buzzwords and aesthetics and feelings, whereas yeah. we yeah. we are the ones who actually know what these people say and what they think and what they do. So, yeah. <laughs> It's not as if he said anything that was particularly new no. or novel or a revelation. Uh, the, the election was rigged. Um, you're a nasty woman. It's <laughs> like, 
he said these things over and over again. And like, what new philosophical or political ground is being broken here such that I must listen uh, to this man? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. There's no discussion or discourse happening. He's just spewed bullshit. Yeah. It, it achieved nothing of any value at all. No, nothing informative about it. The only thing it achieved was to have this, this guy say on television, well, actually, I was right to effectively say on television, yeah, I was right to, to, to overthrow American democracy and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, pardon the people that helped me do it and I'm going to have another go at it. Uh, he said that on a, on a mainstream American cable news network to wild applause. Well, that's... All that achieves is it further normalizes it and further mainstreams it, makes yeah. it look more yeah. like a respectable position. Yep, yep. And, I mean, he said unhinged, completely ridiculous things, like Democrats are murdering babies after they're born. Like, yeah. what the fuck is that? Well, And there's I, nothing you can say even to someone who's talking like that. It's like trying to bang your head against a brick wall like there's no point in even like attempting to debunk something so crazy and out there well one of the things that i think you know in my opinion one of the things that people don't get about this because they they i mean it's quite natural to respond this way with outrage and amazement to such staggering statements and the instinct to point out inaccuracy and hypocrisy and lies is in is, it's incredibly strong and it's incredibly understandable and we should do it and we need to do it etc but on a fundamental level whether these things are true or not is just not the point to these people when 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 they when they say things like that when they say you know democrats hillary clinton or whatever they support roe v wade and roe v wade used to mean that doctors could murder nine-month-old babies after they were born when they say things like that they're not actually, you know, in, in real terms, they're not actually making that factual claim because they know it's not true. Their audience knows it's not true. None of them care. They don't care if it's true or not. The point of the statement is the people that we're talking about, the people we all hate, Hillary Clinton, the Democrats, whoever we're talking about, trans people, the left, any given moment, those people are evil and we should be able to kill them. That's what it actually means. Yeah, the, uh, the line, the... Um... Uh, the bit of, uh, you know, killing babies after they're born sort of thing also has a, a long uh, history in terms of being used as a uh, anti-abortion talking point. So that is a, uh, you know, he's, he's dog whistling to his people and not even dog whistling. That's just an outright blaring horn to, to the people who are uh, anti-abortion that he's like on their side. That's something that's like, it's very, very common among even like mildly right to center um, uh, people uh, using, using that kind of language. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's that common because the the discourse is fundamentally about saying over and over again, you know, we all hate X group, Democrats, whoever, and they should die. They're the worst people imaginable. They're evil. They're satanic. They're demons. They're pedophiles. Whatever. That whatever whatever way we phrase it, what we're saying is they are the worst people. They're they're evil, and we should be able to kill them. And who knows? Maybe one day we will. I think that's all they're saying over and over and over again in just different ways. And that, pos and that kind of position is impervious to, you know, any sort of factual um, debating. Yeah. Any sort of fact-based discourse. Because you could, for instance, say, well, 
uh, late-term abortions are incredibly rare. Um, they're only done in, you know, very dire, very tragic um, circumstances. Um, but that the time and energy it would take to engage in that kind of explanation, you've already lost because yeah. this man has, those evil people over there are killing babies after they're born. And so it's, it's, it's self-defeating, I think, um, to approach that kind of politics um, in this sort of, you know, IDW, let's, let's, let's debate controversial ideas, um, uh, uh, bullshit. Um, the people who are saying that their opponents are killing babies after they're born are not interested in um, logic, reasoned um, debates and, you know, factual disagreements and that kind of thing. They're, they are committed to a political project and that political project is to defeat, to totally defeat their, their political opponents. And I think so long as we, the targets are distracted um, by this ridiculous idea that, you know, we should all be engaged in never, never ending debates um, then, yeah, we're not doing what we need to do um, in order to win the, the battle against against the right. Yeah, I don't think that we should be engaging in those kinds of debates either. And, uh, you know, I used to be someone that didn't fully believe that a few years ago. I was always like, well, no, you can always try to reason with someone. And if you're, like, good at... Um, knocking down their points then that can only be good because people will see you like uh debunking their points in real time and but the thing is that when people start like spouting off absolute nonsense there's nothing to effectively debunk there right if they start saying like you know uh there's like um the left is doing this like satanic thing and turning all the babies, I don't know, gay or trans or whatever. There's just no real response that that, that that can be effective in that case because the person is so far gone already. Like, and and then you're just providing them a platform to say that kind of stuff, and then that's bad. I feel like you absolutely should engage with those points, but I feel like you should not give those people a chance to just spout their nonsense um, without pushback. In a more controlled environment, you can take their ridiculous points and debunk them. And... But, I, but I also think that there are, there are some points that um, it is grossly unfair to expect um, at least some people uh, to engage with, and I'll give an example. I agree. I agree. When when I was in um, uni university in in uh, in England um, as a black Jamaican, somebody born and raised um, in Jamaica, um, there were some people who really wanted to discuss um, the 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 proposition that you know uh, people of African descent are somehow intellectually uh, inferior genetically. And my response to that is, hell no, I'm not having a debate um, yeah. with you about my humanity. Absolutely. And, 
and I was very clear about telling them to um, to fuck off, and and also some choice Jamaican <laughs> words that they didn't understand. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree with you. There are some things that just you know do not warrant a debate or a debunking, and we shouldn't have to keep going around in circles just because these people want to keep rehashing the same ideas. Should women have these rights? Should people of color have these rights? Uh, are white people superior? These are things that are just, you know, no, we, we've got to move past these types of things. I, I wouldn't engage in endless debate about these topics. But what I'm saying is that there are some people on the left that will say, scold people like me, or even maybe Jack and Daniel for covering the topics that we do. And I don't think that it's a good idea to just completely disengage with these kinds of views when they are out there, when they're everywhere. It's at least important to um, show people what, what some of these people are saying to cover it without giving these people a platform, without debating it, but just presenting it um, and saying, well, this is pretty fucked up. Not trying to do a fair and balanced both sides kind of thing, but just yeah. showcasing the absolute horror of some of what they say. Well, well, and to go back to your go back to your example earlier, Ina, where you were like, you know, where like, oh, the kids, you know, they're making the kids gay, they're making the kids trans, and then like your immediate response, I think, is to say, well, no, that's not happening, et cetera, et cetera, which just, you know, it encourages the frame that being gay and trans is kind of a bad thing that shouldn't be, you know, that children right, shouldn't right. be exposed to, right, you know? And so, like, it's very tricky sometimes to, like, not find yourself in that in that kind of rhetorical space, even if you chose to kind of be in this conversation, you know? Um, and, that's, and that's why these guys love the debate format, why they love this sort of, like, this pseudo-intellectual, this faux-academic kind of pose in which, like, we're just trying to discuss these ideas about, like, what's happening because they can always twist it in a way that serves their own their own ends yeah it's yeah. just it's yeah. just it's just kind of pointless like anytime i try to i start to like debunk something like in a twitter thread or whenever i'm you know prepping an episode to start to talk about like an idea it's always like a, i have the impulse of like and let me explain why this is wrong and then like increasingly like no i don't have to explain why this is wrong <laughs> it's fine i can just let it pass that this is wrong and i can i can move on to more interesting material so you know Right, right. The amount of times that I, uh, you know, get like what Sam Harris fans in my mentions trying to debate with me about how he's not a right winger. And have you even like seen his anti-Trump stuff? And it's like, dude, like, I think I've covered this 49 and a half times just today. Please, please. Just, <laughs> I can't. I... It's, it's, it's the stuff where he says, he says, he says very seriously, he says, you know, I know that Trump is, I, I, I have no idea that Trump is, is, is racist, but every single example um, of Trump's racism pointed out by people on the left, Sam goes, but that, that's not racism. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, dude, what the hell are you on about? It's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's gaslighting, it's wasting. Mm -hmm. It's wasting your time. So here in Jamaica, we are now having so the 
the trans panic. Um, Everywhere. The gender, yeah, the gender critical panic has now reached um, our tiny island. And so we're now, um, so we now have fundamentalist um, Christians who are a daily hazard um, in a place like Jamaica. But, um, so we now have fundamentalist Christians who are seizing on a, a few lines in agenda policy at the University of the West Indies that's been in place since 2017. And these lines talk about respecting people's pronouns and using them. And so now we have fundamentalist Christians, um, you know, saying this is the this is the trans agenda being being imposed on Christian lecturers at the university. Remember, this has been in place since 2017 without a problem. And yeah, so I, yeah. I had a comment about it, and I said basically we should um, we should be organizing to defeat um, to defeat these Christian bigots. And so one of them showed up to say to ask me how many genders are there, and I just said, yeah, I'm not playing this game with you. Sorry. And he kept asking, so, but I just want to know how many genders are there. I'm like, no, not answering your question. Not yeah. playing this game with you. It's a trap. Because, yeah, yeah, it's a trap. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not wasting my time. I'm really not wasting my time. Wasting my time on this. So I, I am concerned about how much time we can waste and how much energy we waste um, sometimes trying to engage in these debates, trying not to look like, I don't know, like we're snowflakes and, you know, we can't handle challenges to our, our positions and our philosophy and, uh, and that kind of thing. I think even that framing is itself uh, a trap. And um, I've reached the point where, I don't know, maybe I'm becoming um, less tolerant in my old age, um, but I've reached the point where I'm just like, yeah, I'm not having these conversations um, with you at all. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I've, I've reached that point to a great degree as well, though I still feel like um, an obligation to have some content that I put out that's on record, uh, just going through with a fine tooth comb some of these guys that people uh, don't necessarily see as obviously as, say, I don't know, like Tucker Carlson, but they're saying the same things as Tucker Carlson. That's the that's the space that really interests me, which is why, you know, Sam Harris is, is a guy that really interests me. Um, but he is exhausting to cover. I, I feel emotionally drained after just all that gaslighty, dishonest, speaking out of both sides of his mouth kind of content. So, yeah, I have taken a bit of a break from that. But, um, yeah, so let's um, move on and talk about this thing about multiracial Nazis and people not really understanding that. And the recent shooting in Allen, Texas. Sorry, I just got distracted. Um, yeah, that shooting was just... And a, a horrific, a horrific, horrific tragedy. Just mute your mic until you're speaking. Um, yeah, and, you know, we've seen the rights reactions to it and how they're trying to paint it as, like, some kind of psyop and fake, and uh, they try to say that the guy was a member of 
some cartel because he's Latino. And then even when it came out that he had these like massive Nazi tattoos on him, there was like all this like just trying to downplay that like okay he might have the nazi tattoos but what was his real motivation and even in the headlines you see they're like you know we're still looking for a motive and he 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 did have like nazi ideation though uh though i imagine that they're looking for a more specific motive like why there why then why that and just the fact that people have people like Tim Poole and I think Andy No and all those people are just like trying to so hard deny that someone non-white could be steeped in white supremacist ideology and really we've seen it so often right there, there's all there's the Proud Boys guy there's Nick Fuentes. There was a piece uh, a few years ago about like this Nazi neo-Nazi couple who like had this Nazi-themed wedding in Mexico, and like it's there, it's there, and you see it like you see this kind of like tokenization on the right uh, on different levels, right? You see that in like mainstream right wingery. You see that, uh, you know, with like transphobic trans people, you see that with uh, homophobic gay people, they're doing the rights work for them, but their status as a minority gives them credibility. You see that even in like UK government, like the people that are saying the worst things on the right seem to be like people of color nowadays. And they appoint those people for a reason. Suela Braverman. Yeah. <laughs> and Priti Patel before her. Um, also, Sunak has also engaged in some fairly suspect um, language around, um, it was about a month or so ago, um, he was going on about um, um, Pakistani uh, grooming gangs and yeah, it's... Who's this? Uh, this uh, uh, the Prime Minister, Rishi, Rishi Sunak. Oh, okay. I didn't hear who you, who you said. I thought you were talking about uh, Majid Nawaz, but but yeah, him too. <laughs> I, I tried never ever yeah. to talk about Majid Nawaz. Um, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, 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 sorry, I don't know why this is escaping me. The Home Department. Um, uh, some of the worst um, treatment meted out to um, West Indians um, in the, the Wimbush scandal came when the Home Department was under the stewardship of, of, of um, Priti Patel. I know that it's under the stewardship of Serena Braverman. I mean, there is just no justice in sight um, for loads of uh, Black Britons of Caribbean descent who were... Um, unjustly deported uh, to islands that a lot of them just didn't know about, had no real connection. A lot of them ended up living on the streets um, when they were deported to places like Jamaica and Trinidad. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was horrific. But you have these, yes. you know, black and brown. You're cutting off. Yeah, I can't, I can't hear anything you're saying. 
But um, Jack, do you want to say anything about all all the stuff that I just uh, just said? Jack, Daniel. Yeah, sure. I I, I don't want to talk over the uh, the gentleman. Uh, if he comes back, I'd I'd like to hear what he has to say. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is a um, it's it's a it's one of the things that bothers me no end about my own country. Really, is that we the United Kingdom. Uh, this is frustrating. I'd like I'm to. Uh, we can't hear you. Or am I the yeah, only sorry, one? Sorry, no, I'm 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 not hearing you. You're breaking up. Yeah, so maybe- yeah, I was just going to say the the whole Windrush scandal, the way we just sort of moved past it in this country, the, the outrageous, disgusting thing that happened in the midst of, in the course of trying to create what was, you know, actually publicly called the create the hostile environment for um, immigrants. Um, like that's like that's a good thing. That's something to boast about. Yes, we're going to create a hostile environment for for, oh, for immigrants. Great. Yeah. Well done. Applause, everybody. Like that was that was the respectable part of the policy, you know. And in the course of that, we end up deporting people that have that have lived in this country that have been British for for decades and and their children. And, you know, because of the com- the complexities of history around the Windrush, just outright racial. I mean, that's what it was. But, you know, people can argue about the, de- the levels of deliberateness. You can't argue that the whole policy in, in what was intended was racist to the core right from the start. It was basically um, a, a little mini outbreak of racial ethnic cleansing and deportation. Absolutely shameful. I mean, it, it, but... Nobody suffered any consequences. Nobody got fired. Nobody suffered public opprobrium. We've all just kind of gone, oh, yeah, that happened, didn't it? Oh, well, never mind. And it's absolutely shameful. It's, uh, you know, I don't have any national feeling, but it is shameful. Um, And they do, like, kind of have, like, people of color saying the things that maybe they feel that not people of color can't say. It seems like it's easier to have them say it when it's about the awful. I, 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 I don't know how deliberate that is. I think um, I mean, there's probably a level of cynicism sometimes, um, but I think really just that's, that's the way the system works. Now the system has managed to expand, to encompass people, uh, you know, the system, particularly in the, in the person, the personage of the Tory party itself has managed to expand to encompass people with, who of, of non-white heritage, as long as they're of the right ideology and the right um, class, background you know and right. um this is what this is what people always constantly persistently misunderstand about how how white supremacy works white supremacy is a system capitalism is a system they are interrelated systems they're they're different versions of the same system i would say they work systemically it's not it doesn't work on this one-to-one literal um connection where you know if you're a white supremacist that means if you in order to be a white supremacist you have to subscribe to this position and that position and that position in order to be fully signed up to the 10 point program of white supremacy if you don't if you don't do that you're not a white supremacist and in order to do that logically in order to be logically a white supremacist obviously you have to be white as if there's anything logical about any of this nonsense you know um so no it, it it works systemically it doesn't work in this literal logical 
typical one-to-one manner. So, of course, if you're going to have an organization like the Tory party that that expands its its worldview to be able to accept people who are, who are black and brown, to and they're willing to, you know, and, and some of them are willing to to subscribe to its policies and, and they're from the right social. Of course, you're going to have people of, of color doing stuff like this. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? And this is this is precisely the misunderstanding. And I think to all intents and purposes, and, and a lot of the time, very obviously, the willful misunderstanding, the deliberate misunderstanding that right. is behind people doing this nonsense where they say, well, you say it was white supremacy, but he had a Mexican name. You know, it, it, one of the things I've noticed is that um, it, because Twitter has been turned into a Nazi Chan board, basically, by, by uh, Elon Musk, and it's <laughs> determined to, f- to funnel right-wing ideologues at me, regardless of the fact I don't follow them. It's constantly making me read tweets, but well, it doesn't make me, but it's constantly providing me with tweets from Ian Miles Chong. And, uh, and, he's, and him and Michael Tracy are basically saying exactly the same shit about this. They're both doing this, this whole sort of faux sceptical, let's stroke our chins and think very deeply yeah, about yeah. what this all means sort of thing. And it all amounts to denialism. It all just amounts to um, white supremacy denialism. Yeah, I mean, and like you have people like, what's his name, Enrico Terrio of the Proud Boys, and you have him on record saying things like, um, I'm pretty brown, I'm Cuban, there's nothing white supremacist about me. And that's really what they hide behind, like when there are people of color that are, you know, pushing this or subscribing to this. Yeah, and it's so historically illiterate as well. If you, if you, I mean, why is Latin America called Latin America? Because of the entire history of Western imperialism. The mm-hmm. the entire continent is the way it is because of the history of European imperialism. Um, right the way through South and Central America, you have societies that are riven by the class and race, the interconnected class and race conflict between the whites. Uh, which, you know, the paler people um, who are generally, of course, because white supremacy is, is continent wide, um, generally have a higher economic status, generally more politically powerful, generally have more property and more land, etc. And the native people, the, more, the people of more native extraction who tend to be darker skinned and tend to be poorer, etc., etc. In, in so many of these South and Central American countries, you have exactly this. And that's why they have um, such... Um, deeply entrenched far-right fascist movements in those countries. So the idea that you can't have you can't have a white supremacist who's got a Latinx name, it's insane. It's a level of ignorance that is so profound it can only be willful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, some people are so confident about that just not being possible, right? Like, and I hate to go back to old Harris, but... You know, he would say things like, well, you know, how can Milo be right wing or uh, far right? Uh, He's flamboyantly gay. And it's, is he really that ignorant? He he is, though. I mean, just listen to what he says, Sam. (laughs) It's really, it's no more complicated than that. Just listen to what he says. (laughs) It's, yeah, it boggles the mind. Are they really that silly? Are they really that ignorant or are they just trying super hard not to see what's in front of them? Well, it's very convenient for them, right? Like it's very convenient if you're, you know, if you're Ian Miles Chong or, you know, or some of these guys, you met, uh, what's, um, 
Uh, if you're Ian Miles Chong, it's very convenient to say, well, I'm not white, and therefore I can't be a white supremacist, right? If you're Andy No, you could say, well, I'm not white, and I'm gay, and therefore I cannot be encouraging white supremacy. And if you're sort of a white ally to these people, and you agree with these sort of political goals that Andy No and Ian Miles Chong have, then it's very easy to sort of point to those people and go, well, yeah, but these these are not white people, and therefore they can't be doing this, because I agree with them, I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm not, I'm also not enshrining white supremacy. White supremacy is just the, you know, the actual, you know, Sikh hailing Nazis in the corner there. Those are the, those are the really bad people, you know. Right. And, right. you know, like I'm reminded of the, uh, when uh, Kelly J. Keene was in Melbourne and uh, held a rally and like Nazis showed up and were like, no, we're on your side. <laughs> and her response is like, no, those were, those were clearly, they had their own rally. It was like 20 feet away. They were far away from our, from our thing that we were doing. And they were probably just agent provocateurs anyway, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's like, yeah, just because they believe everything that I believe about this topic, that doesn't make us allies at all. It's just, yeah, well, clearly it's a very, <laughs> very different thing, you know? And so the, like the, the, the Allen, the, 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 the Texas shooter, was non-white. It was like a gotcha. It's just like you know. Well, he couldn't be a Nazi because he was he, he wasn't white. And you know, like you know, it, you, you, we need to be judged by the character by our character and not the color of our skin. And therefore, you know, suck on it, liberals. That's that's really what. That's really all that's meant to do. And because social media just encourages this kind of dunking, you know, process and doesn't respond to any kind of you know logic and reason etc um it'll it, it it's allows it, it it'll it is allowed to fester and it's allowed to continue and they just get off scot-free with this and it's the most infuriating thing because it is so it's just so stupid as to be you know just unimaginable that we keep having to have this conversation in public but like yes it is possible to be non-white and to enforce white supremacy because White supremacy is a stupid ideology, but sometimes brown people can be stupid and bigoted. And like, we have to just like, <laughs> it's not any more complicated than that. Like, you know, yes. Right, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, all sorts of people can be all sorts of bigoted. That's what people need to understand. And as like, society changes that obvious form of like caricature kkk white robes kind of racism is going to be harder and harder to like slip in right as it doesn't as it gets recognized for what it is as it's not accepted racism too will shift and evolve in order to survive and spread itself in society today and that looks different. That looks like, you know, intersectional bigotry, bigots of all colors and orientations and genders. And it's possible. Anything is possible. And to just like be so ignorant as to say, well, someone can't be, um, someone can't be far right because they're Jewish. Someone can't be like spreading homophobia because they're gay like man we live in the world of uh you know dave rubin and blair white how are you still saying this jordan peterson too like he was 
tweeting things about the shooting, like, um, ha ha, you know, I think he quote tweeted something that was like a joke, like, oh, white supremacy is in such short supply that we had to outsource it to uh, Mexico. And he's like, are Mexicans white nowadays? It's just so ridiculous. And actually, there are, as Jack was saying earlier, there are Mexicans that identify as white. And do you know? Well, again, again, the historical ignorance on display. White is a socially and historically con constructed category. It's a thing that was invented and constructed over a long time. You know, who was and wasn't white was a thing that was was decided and assembled over a very long time. It. it, it yeah, in some contexts, Mexicans can, you know, people of Mexican descent can be white or they can decide to ally themselves with white supremacy. Can we just, like, can we just start with acknowledging what's real? Like, the guy had, a, had, a, had that name, sure, but he also had swastikas and SS lightning bolts tattooed, tattooed all over himself. And in a hundred other ways, we can see that he absolutely was a far rightist of some kind of fucking Nazi. Can we start from the things that are empirically confirmed and then get into the, the complex metaphysics? You know, it's fascinating to watch them switch back and forth between literalism and metaphysics, depending on what they need to argue. Yeah. Uh, Pi, did you want to say something? Hi, yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I, I do want to say a lot of things, uh, but I've joined in pretty late and I don't know the kind of things that you've already discussed but it's very interesting everything that you're saying and I was wondering uh, I mean it's something that I think about quite a bit is uh, like who because of social media as you said that everything is changing now um, you know and everything is everything evolves and it is evolving racism is evolving with social media and I was wondering like social media has changed so much like our access to the world has changed how we you know, sort of see each other has changed. Who do you think has, uh, you know, has a more advantage? Is it the racist ideologies or, you know, the more liberal, free-thinking ideologies uh, that have, like, more support on social media and that get more, you know... Yeah, it's... it's I mean, I know what I hope is true, uh, but it's hard to say because I feel like right-wing stuff is so much more well-funded, well-organized, because for a long time it seemed like they were so badly losing the culture war that uh, they've really tried to get their shit together and in an organized, well-funded way just do their propaganda hardcore. Uh, to make their ideology more appealing and kind of repackage it for a younger audience. And I just, I, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it appears that it's getting popular because it's horrifying what I see online. Um, that could just be because it's so insecure that it has to work that hard, right? Because they're fighting against time and modernity. But I, I don't know. I, I used to take these things for granted and be like, well, the rights that we won are not going to be like rolled back. So we're just moving forward. And that has happened in front of my very eyes these days. So I'm just, I'm not sure anymore.
Does anyone, anyone else, Daniel, Jack, have anything to say about that? I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, I mean, broadly speaking, we seem to be moving in the right direction. You know, I hate, I don't want to sound like, um, like I'm being whiggish and too optimistic and so on, but you know, few, fewer and fewer people buy into, um, bigoted ideas about uh, people of other races and so on at least in their in their fully formulated ideological form you know um, uh, uh, fewer and fewer people will say yes to a proposition like do you think that uh, uh, white people are biologically superior but you know there's still plenty of people like that but uh, much fewer than there were let's say 100 years ago so yeah but at the same time people um, still accede to loads of propositions and assumptions that are part of um white supremacy as a system you know and and like we were talking about before with the with the eugene carroll case loads of people that would never that would never think of themselves as being uh sexists or rape apologists or anything like that might still ask those sorts of questions of a survivor of sexual assault you know and those sorts of questions like what were you wearing did you struggle hard enough etc they're all part of how um that that system of violent patriarchy just continues and reproduces itself and i think i mean it's it's terrifying to think about like um the amount of influence that this andrew tate character has over young boys uh, yeah. we, we've been hearing been hearing a lot about this clown recently and i didn't i didn't really realize like you have school teachers talking about this being a real problem that they face every day, facing in class from quite young children, boys of eleven and twelve years old, and they have a problem dealing with them because they're 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 reciting attitudes and ideas and 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 stuff like that that they get directly from Andrew Tate because he's incredibly popular with that young age group, and it's not that it's not that people are um, uh, still clinging to you know yesterday's racism. Um, but these 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 forms of organized prejudice they they mutate to try to survive you know like a virus will mutate to survive and that's the and the the, the thing that the right are really good at is understanding that it's not about winning an argument and it seems like a strange thing to say because they spend so much of their time and their money promoting their ideology but they're really they're not trying i don't think they're really trying to win the battle of ideas i really don't think they are trying to like recruit people to their ideas or win with their ideas um and it's i think they've realized that they're losing on that front what they're trying to do and they seem to get this and this is a really scary thing the aim is to disrupt and to confuse and to create these endless um debates and these, these distracting debates right. kind of like kind of like what we we're talking about before to endlessly defer certainty and endlessly disorientate people with their bullshit arguments and keep people arguing on that level and all the time they're doing that under the under the level of the of the debate and, and the the war of ideas they're chipping away materially at democracy that seems to be the formula they've hit upon, and they're—they're, they're, you know, to put it crudely, they're—they're they're losing the battle of ideas, but they are winning the material battle. That's—that's that's the thing that frightens me. Mm. I, I think we've got—I've got a lot to say to that, um, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. Um, I think I, I broadly agree. I think that one of the things is, you know, they use this sort of war of ideas as this uh, Trojan horse, or as this sort of like stalking horse, as a way of like. Um, 
getting this stuff, getting these, getting this propaganda out there in a way that makes it seem, I don't know if you want to say less threatening or sort of like less overtly nasty, but it's like if we're debating a proposition or apparently debating a proposition, I don't have to say the thing that I obviously want to say, right? And so I get to kind of exist in that environment. I think to the initial kind of ideas, like who's kind of winning the, the battle here? I think that like, broadly speaking, everyone who's on this call, whether it's a speaker or it's a listener, is very, very heavily online. And online is in general a space that is just rife with this <laughs> shit because there was a concerted effort by like actors who have names and addresses and email addresses and websites to push this into this kind of space because it was easy to make it spread here in these online spaces. I don't see as much of it in my kind of day-to-day -day existence. You know, I can go about in, you know, <laughs> I can go about my day-to-day -day life and never run into these ideas unless it's, you know, right. uh, unless it's in this very kind of rarefied, you know, kind of, kind of off the wall form. That said, also the way that this manifests itself and the way that like Twitter in particular is a mechanism or is a vector for this stuff is that um, every journalist is on Twitter. And so it makes the news more because they're being harassed by neo-Nazis or because they're having like this kind of like, they just feel like they have to respond. And of course, legislatures and, um, you know, other newsmakers of various kinds are also kind of following that same discourse. And so we're seeing laws like really draconian anti-trans legislation being passed all over the country right now, but always at like the state and local level. We're seeing libraries, you know, like ripped apart. We're seeing all of this kind of stuff. And that's happening because um, people in positions of power believe they can use it, as, they can use anti-trans hate as a cudgel in order to win elections and in order to like consolidate the, their base of power. Now, that's having like middling effects. Like DeSantis is clearly kind of on his, his balloon is deflating and he's been like arguably at the forefront of this stuff and at least in Florida for the last couple of years. Like he was really running on being the, I'm the more bigoted effective Trump effectively. And I think that, um, realistically the, you know, kind of the, the Republican voter base, while they may like, like seeing all that trans stuff taken out of uh, schools, et cetera, they're not going to vote for DeSantis over Trump because ultimately getting rid of trans people is less important to them than um, Trump, like as a person and as a candidate and other things that they care about, you know, politically, even on the aesthetics of the of politics. So all that to say, shit is fucked up and bad. <laughs> and, um, but I don't think it's, I don't, I think, I think we get like a skewed perspective of how bad it is if we're just sort of following the news and we're just sort of like following, you know, your Twitter feed, I think, I think like, again, and, you know, my experience is not, um, you know, I have, a, I have a very privileged existence in a lot of ways, but I'm not seeing the kind of the levels of overt hate in my day-to-day -day life that you would expect if it was really getting that bad. And um, that does not mean they're not going to do horrible things to trans people. They haven't already done horrible things to trans people and people of color. And, you know, name your, name, name your group here. They will do terrible things to them. And they will use the state apparatus to do so. Um, but uh, people at large are mostly reachable. You know, I, and I think that's kind of the logic. And I think that, you know, if we are going to try to reach these people, we need to reach them through 
you know, positive messaging through like, have you ever met a trans person? You know, I know quite a few and they're perfectly fine people. Mostly some of them are terrible because again, people are sometimes terrible, but like, you know, it's, it's such like responding to Michael Knowles or responding to Dave Rubin is pointless for you and I, because we don't have the platform to like respond to. But if we really are going to make like positive change, it has to be like meeting the people and like giving them the, the not bigoted version of this, as opposed to just responding to the bigots, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree somewhat, but I do want to say that I am seeing it more and more in my real life too. Like, I mean, I'm not seeing the kinds of Nazis and incels that I see online, of course, but I am starting to see like anti-wokeness come into play. Um, And just like, you know, one time I went to a Christmas party with uh, a bunch of my neighbors. It was in my neighborhood, and I was the only non-white person there. And I think that was the year where there was, like, some kind of fear-mongering about the gender of gingerbread men in some some cafe or something. And so, like, my neighbors brought this up, and they were all like, oh, my God, things are getting so crazy and you can't even say anything anymore. And I just felt really like, mm, I know where this line of thinking leads. It, whereas if I was not an online person, I would just think, okay, yeah, they're talking about cookies, whatever. But like, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole pipeline here. You start with like the milder anti-woke things and it gets worse and worse. And then later on, it did turn out that one of my neighbors um, was a Trump supporter in Canada. <laughs> She's not American, but like, you know, we had been pretty good friends. And one day she just let it out. She's like, yeah, it's so bad that no one can say anything anymore. And why do they demonize Trump like that? And I just was like, whoa, it was pretty horrifying to watch that in real life because you don't come across many Trump supporters in Canada. And uh, then the pandemic happened. And so I never saw her again for like years. So it was weird, weird, weird. Yeah. So it is out there just uh, slowly making its way out there. And uh, I guess when we're online, we kind of learn about these things first. And then slowly, slowly, like over the years, you hear like people in your real life mentioned like, oh, Milo Yiannopoulos, or oh, Alex Jones, or, you know, I feel like it gets out, but just later. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. And again, I was not trying to be Pollyanna-ish about any of that. It was more just trying to say that, like, you know, it's happening, and it is continuing to, I mean, it is continuing to get worse. I keep saying things will get worse before they get better. Um, I was really suggesting that we do get the, the skewed perspective of just being like very online. Um, and that does having, you know, going outside and touching grass does, does, does help if you get like, yeah. if you're like me and you're in this like all day, every day, and then like going and like, I'm going to take my headphones off for 20 minutes and maybe just go on a walk on the park. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. I feel better now. <laughs> you know? So um, it's, it's, a, you know, again, my perspective is obviously skewed. Um, and I have my own you know privileges in this of like certain things I don't, I'm not forced to look at, but you know, I see right. it, I do see it. You and it white is. Man. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, we've got a couple of hands up. I think Brown Villain, you had your hand up. 
uh, before. So yes, I I did. Hey everybody, um, I wanted to sort of loop back to the the sort of uh, time and sort of like time, sort of being like the time and progress or time and you know being something that would improve the situation that like that progressively the country will become more progressive america especially and i i want to the way i want to i'm not pushing back on it but i will say that i will say that i went to a to a, to a, a talk with uh uh that jonathan Hyde hosted in 2019 and that it, it and, oh and the idea it was it was i was at the launch for a, a, a book um and he he did the, he did the introduction, and he talked a lot about about the demographic shift, and I I think that it, it, it's one of the biggest. I kind of feel like it's a it's a bit of a straw man, because yes, you know by I don't know 2040, 2050, whatever the time they they they'll, they'll throw out, this America will be a majority minority or whatever. The, you know the, the majority of people in this country will not will be non-white. But I mean, but this is the this is the United States. It's not as if this country doesn't have a history of being able to subjugate a population that is actually the you know the the demographic majority of the country. You know that that that, and it's not as if we don't have examples of that all over, all over the world. So you know to just sort of make the assumption like the, it's it's as if he they built a, a they've built a future. Uh, you know, they built that future out as an as like to sort of pull back on progressive thought or progressive or pushing for change because you just know that in 20 years, you know, things will be different. But there is not going to be some sort of ceremonial handover. You know, this is, this, this, America is not Hong Kong or you know or, or some, you know any other like protectorate where where the people who are the demographic majority will suddenly be ceded all of the institutional power in the country because they are the majority. So, you know, so I think that the, the that, and, and I think that, that thought is very, is very pervasive on both sides. And it, 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 it kind of helps to write in two ways because it raises fear in, in people who are reactionary and, and, and complacency in people that, you know, maybe would push for change, but think it's inevitable. I don't know what you guys think of that. Uh, right. I, I only caught some of it because I was distracted by the uh, noises in the background there. I'm sorry. I'm 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 near. I'm actually I'm in Central Park, and I thought it would be quiet. Speaking of touching <laughs> grass, but you know, just like Trump said, it's just it's just so crazy here. So much crime. So much noise. <laughs> Sounds like you're having a very fun evening. There's like wind and live music and. Yeah, sorry. I yeah, I got distracted. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry about that. So if you can just I, like I, yeah. kind of briefly or, all right, Jack, if you if you know what you're saying, then go ahead. Oh, I was I was just gonna say I, I just kind of struck by how amazing it is that I'm I'm sat here in my in my little room in um in England and I'm I'm talking to a guy who's walking in Central Park. I've just kind of uh uh, <laughs> mind blown but um yeah basically I, I i i just agree with everything you said really no notes that, i mean it's a bit underwhelming but there it is <laughs> i agree 
<laughs> yeah, and when you say that there's a history, uh, like obviously of the of them subjugating a population, yeah, I mean Jonathan Haidt, right? He's one of these IDW type guys, and what what context was he talking about demographics in? Like, I find it always shady when. Do you mind if I? Uh... Cut him. Oh yeah, we have a, an expert here. Sorry, <laughs> you can go for it <laughs> against my will. <laughs> um, so I bet he was talking about Eric Kaufman's book White Shift. That's my guess. Uh-uh. Um, and yeah, it's this thing of you know we'll find anything that progressives want and we'll say that oh don't do that thing because it's going to cause the right to react even more harshly and you'll get the opposite of what you want. Um, and then. But now Jonathan Haidt's thesis seems to be um, the problem that we're having is that young people are all uh, mentally ill. (laughs) They're all anxious and depressed. And so that's why they're acting totally out of control. Haidt has been like favorably quoted by like Richard Spencer going back to 2016 as well. So like this is, yeah. (laughs) I mean, just to be clear, like Haidt is, is not a Nazi, but is very favorably quoted by Nazis because he says things that they like. So many of these guys, eh? Um, all right. I was going to say, that's basically just a capsule description of the IDW, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, basically all of them, yeah. Totally not Nazis, but, you know, they're kind of quoted by Nazis often. All right, we have uh, some other hands up. I think next we had JDSU put his hand up. Hi. Um, hey, uh, just one second before we get into anything. I'm going to have to get out and get out of here in a few minutes. So I really right. love being here, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I just didn't want to uh, leave without saying uh, thank you for inviting me, et cetera, et cetera. I just got things that I got to do right now. So um, I'm yeah. going to listen for a little bit longer, but if I dip out, then very nice to be here. Cheers. Okay, see Hi. you, Daniel. Bye-bye. Um, can you guys understand me? I'm a tongue cancer survivor, so it... Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, you sound you sound fine to me, yeah. Okay, yeah. Regarding um, two things, regarding um, Andrew Tate, he kind of reminds me a little of... Um, so similar to Gabriella de Annunzio a little bit. And in regards to the multiracial Nazis, that that is not um something that's new even. For example, um in the interwar years the Chinese KMT faction had a group called the um Blue Shirts society which were modeled after the italian fascist so yeah it's nothing new really yeah 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 absolutely fascism has been very adaptable to to various different uh, uh nationalities and yeah absolutely it always has been i mean it's it's adaptable its adaptability is one of its one of its uh, terrifying strengths um, Gabriel Denuncio, um, he was an Italian uh, poet, I think, if I remember rightly, but I'm not familiar particularly. He, um, 
a poet. He also was in World War One, and after 1919, he took over a city in Fayume. If my if my pronunciation is off or anything, and pretty much basically set up what could be considered a proto-fascist regime. It did not go well. <laughs> yeah, that rings a bell. But I'm, I have to confess, near total ignorance. But yeah, I think I know the guy you're talking about. And it's often a part of uh, fascism, isn't it? This this weird uh, um, aggressive machismo factor. Um, well, I, I think almost invariably, actually. And there's definitely something of that about Tate. Um, as, as you know, that, that, um, that aspect has been running through our entire sort of modern resurgence of fascist ideology right from the start. I mean, right the way. Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Just showing my support of what you were saying. I did. I do want to discuss like this, like very intertwined nature of misogyny and uh, Nazism or far rightness um, in a bit. But let me just uh, talk to the people with the hands up first. I think it was uh, Teddy. Teddy next. Oh, looks like Teddy's disconnected. All right. DS. Uh, we kept him waiting too long. Yeah. <laughs> let let Teddy go before me. He's a real expert. Oh, he he's back. Okay. Yeah. Let me just approve his request and uh All right, Teddy. What's up? Hey, Teddy. I thought I approved the speaker request. I guess did I not? Mm. -mm. These kinds of things always happen in spaces. Forgive me, anyone listening. I cannot find him now. Oh, no, it says you're a speaker. It says you're a speaker. Okay. I don't see him anymore, so I don't know what's happening. All right. In the meantime, oh. I, I could just, yeah. I think I he's back. I think he's here. But oh, okay. Teddy? No? Okay. No, I see him, but I I don't hear anything. So, yeah. All right. Okay. DS. Yeah, I I just want to offer a factoid, and then I had a question for you guys. Um, just an interesting factoid. I remember this lecture by this historian George Michael, not the singer. He's like a historian <laughs> of the far right. But actually, believe it or not, the guy you know the term Rahowa. You know, this Nazi term, racial holy war, whatever. Uh, it, 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 the guy who came up with it was half black. He was like one of the leading figures in like the Nazi punk movement it was half black. Anyways, um, my question and sort of what I, I've been thinking about is um, I, I like, I think you guys are exactly right about uh, the virus analogy of how this sort of bigotry mutates over time and adapts. And I sort of, I think of Fuentes, Nick Fuentes as sort of uh, the next adaptation after the failure of Charlottesville, which was sort of like a more conventional neo-Nazi thing. And I think his innovation, and it's, it's what makes it disturbing is 
I think he's adapted his bigotry to, he's trying to create sort of a multicultural anti-Semitism far right movement by, you know, replacing like the overt swastika with the cross, even if it's just a cynical strategy. I, but I question for you guys, since you guys know a ton more than me is, um, I try to keep tabs on the far right. I have a list on Twitter and I, I'll go in there every few months and see what's changing and stuff. And it seems like in the recent years, they've decided to embrace the sort of anti-Semitism a little bit more than the racism, maybe as, as a strategy of, you know, if we that we can, people of different races can embrace that more easier. I, but I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. Thank you. Uh, I wish Daniel was here still because uh, he's more likely to be. I'm um, still here. You know, I was listening. I'm, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't log off yet. Uh, sorry. I'm just making dinner. So I'm trying to do that. <laughs> but, um, you yeah, know, uh, I think that uh, certainly the far right, you know, sort of the, heavily far right, you know, kind of like the National Justice Party and Fuentes, et cetera, um, lean into the anti-Semitism because it's kind of the one thing that they overtly disagree with the mainstream right on <laughs> is, uh, you know, the more overt kind of anti-Semitism where the more mainstream right avoids uh, the really overt anti-Semitism uh, mostly uh, because um, they don't want to piss off uh, <laughs> certain donors and they don't want to piss off, uh, they don't want to look like actual Nazis. And when you start talking about the Jews you start to look a lot like an actual Nazi. And so they tend to, you know, double down on like, no, we don't hate Jews. We love Jews can just be Christians and they'll be great, you know, and that sort of language. Um, and, uh, and in that way kind of masks their, um, masks the, the kind of, you know, <laughs> their actual genocidal project. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think that may be why you're seeing more uh, since Charlottesville, um, or since Unite the Right, uh, why you've been seeing a little bit more of that kind of overt anti-Semitism, um, you know, in those spaces, I think it is like one of the ways they differentiate themselves from um, the more kind of movement conservatives. Teddy? Hey, can y'all hear me now? I can, yeah. Yeah, so, hey, Teddy. Howdy, y'all. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't know what was going on with my signal. It was going crazy, and I couldn't hear <laughs> some of you, and I could hear others. It was ridiculous that's why i had to log off and try to log back on to fix it but you know such is life on elon musk's twitter um so yeah i mean jesus i have like 15 points to make i'll do it very quickly no <laughs> um i would say one of the things um as far as like kind of all of this being reflected in real life i will say that you know now granted i live in texas so like you can um color some of this uh, the way you want, but um, I have seen an uptick in kind of various far-right kind of narratives or kind of conspiracy theories among, I don't know, just associates, people I don't know, people I do know, kind of uh, hearing them in kind of just regular everyday conversation a whole lot more, especially over the last, I don't know, couple of years, um, especially since kind of the heat of the pandemic. Um, so like, especially things around, uh, COVID and all the conspiracy theories around COVID I, I've heard, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard things like vaccine injury from just like regular everyday people or heard, um, really random kind of QAnon adjacent conspiracy theories. The 
being talked about like in line at the grocery store. Like there's just been an uptick in that kind of thing. And I, I'm not sure how much of it is um, because of where I live and the people circles I kind of fall uh, right. are in or, or also how much of that has to do with how online people were for several years, you know? And so, mm -hmm. um, but I will go to kind of a larger point, like the question about the amount of increasing anti-Semitism. Um, I would say like, if you kind of study the far right and racist, white supremacist, xenophobic movements, um, they seem to be kind of cyclical. Like they come, they come in waves almost um, kind of like the idea that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think right now, one of the things I've noticed is, is a, at least in the American context, there seems to be a lot happening in the culture and politics right now that reminds me of the mid 1990s, um, which was also a time where there was a lot of rising anti-Semitism. There was um, a really increased amount of activity among neo-Nazis, uh, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there was a lot of activity, neo-Nazi activity and white supremacist activity there, as there is today. Um, and I think, especially with anti-Semitism, um, when you look at like kind of the ideological framework of white supremacy, um, anti-Semitism is always kind of at the core of it, at the kind of the base of it. Um, it's difficult to like be a white supremacist and not also be anti-Semitic um, because of uh, the kind of importance of that um, that narrative, right? That um, you know, and 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 you see it, I think, filtered and laundered in a lot of other arguments. I think uh, there's a lot of really latent anti-Semitism in the arguments of a critical race theory, right? The whole kind of um, the the people that were really pushing this idea about how CRT is like really. Uh, uh, kind of culture, quote unquote, cultural Marxism. Um, mm -hmm. People like that pushed it, like James Lindsay had this whole kind of conspiracy theory about uh, that CRT was started by Jews coming over from Germany um, into America in the 1930s and 40s in order to like, um, uh, and they started critical theory as a way to um, uh, agitate the blacks and stuff like there's this really deep kind of core of anti-semitism to a lot of this um so i think you know anti-semitism is always there um and it's all and it's also so easy to kind of mask like somebody said you know fuente is using the cross instead of like um any other symbology um there's a lot of like you can do so much winking and nodding at it like the whole you know, you can you can make up all these kind of fear conspiracy theories or far fetched notions about how George Soros controls the left and blah 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 and all his money and kind of have plausible deniability that you're um, not being anti-Semitic when you do it, even though all of that mm -hmm. stuff is coded in anti-Semitic dog whistles. So yeah, I think it's 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 always there, and it and it kind of I see it as kind of coming in waves. And so I think if you kind of, if people are kind of interested in kind of understanding where we are um, historically, um, go back and kind of look at um, the mid to late 
uh, well, early to mid-1990s that has the but, same flavor, I think. But I, I think that the Kanye model is like a real inspiration to the far right. I think they see it as, you know, if we, if we emphasize anti-Semitism, first and foremost, we can build sort of a broader coalition than just being like, yeah, white people are the best. I, I wonder if that's, this is sort of the next adaptation is going to be this sort of Kanye Fuentes multicultural far right uh, model. They had this a version of this when, uh, you know, there was much more talk about Islam and Muslim immigrants bringing, you know, coming to the West to rape white women, blah, blah, blah. Like there was so much of, of that with, and there was always like, well, no, 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 we're not criticizing anyone's race. How can you be racist? Um, if we're just talking about religion, like we're just, you know, secularists here. We're talking about, we're criticizing religion. And, you know, people like me, I'm an atheist. I'm more than happy to criticize religion. And I think it's necessary even, especially the religion that I was born into. But when that turns into like, um, you know, I raise an IQ and <clears throat> fear mongering about immigrants that is not valid critique of religion. And that is something that they use to build a broader coalition of, you know, um, multiracial anti-Muslims. There was a, a guy on Twitter that was talking to me about like the shifting demographics of the UK. And he's like, well, how can that be? I was like, I don't want to talk to you about that. Like, get off my timeline, you're being racist. And he's like, how can that be racist when, you know, my black friends also are worried about Muslims coming into the UK. And, you know, Tommy Robinson used that kind of rhetoric all the time. We have Sikhs, we have Hindus, we have, you know, black members. And it, it was all built around their um, anti-Muslimness. But really, he was also retweeting things like, you know, accounts titled White Rights or talking about white genocide. And just, yeah, it just bleeds into that. Does that answer your question? Like, oh, oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I think they definitely it's sort of interesting. They, I don't hear they don't that sort of talk about Islam and Im immigration, at least in the American context of what right. I've seen it's been like a precipitous fall in focus yeah. on that. Yeah, because now the focus is on trans people, unfortunately, and LGBT. Q people and uh, you know panic about drag shows. It's it's a cycle. It always goes through different. Like they pick a different enemy, and then that's the one that everyone's talking about. It'll you know come back probably. I feel like this. I feel like this yeah. kind of ties into what Teddy was saying just now about our current moment being quite similar in many respects to what was going on in the in the nineties, which is something I also. I also feel, I, I think, I think that's very true. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm really, you know, this isn't a developed thought, but I feel like uh, kind of with um, the war on terror, what happened was a, a kind of a, you know, 9-11 and, and then, the, and, and more broadly sort of the, the rise of neoconservatism as the more, as the dominant mode of American right-wing 
um, thought and power in the uh, early 2000s, which, of course, was consolidated by 9-11 and the, and the war on terror era. I feel that was kind of like an interruption to a, a process that was underway, you know, and it's almost like the, the, the similarities we have now to the early 90s processes um, where right-wing um, American thought is heavily cultic and conspiracist and stuff like that. It's almost like that process that started in the 90s is now, it's, you know, after the interruption of um, neoconservatism and then I suppose maybe the, the 0708 crash. It's like that is that process is resuming. I feel like that's something, because uh, it, it is very similar in many respects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of where the where the where the anti-Muslim stuff went. You know, it was kind of the dominant racist mode, and then it, it outlived its utility. Sorry, please go ahead. When when I think of the 1990s, the biggest difference, and I think it's a it's a big factor we should think about, is uh, just the advance of conspiracy theories is so much greater than it was like in you know 1995. Um, I think like partially it's just uh, it's almost like a natural mechanism of the internet where the content has to become, you know, it's like, Oh, nine eleven truth. Yeah. That was kind of interesting. And JFK, you know, yeah, that was sort of interesting, but I need something stronger, you know, like I, yeah, <laughs> I need like the reptilians. I need the Jews. I need, and, 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 I think that there's sort of like a addiction going on to, more and more novel and extreme conspiracy theories that's continually getting worse. Yeah, and of course that addiction um, dynamic ties in fatally well with how the algorithm works, just the just the processes that have been developed for funneling content to people. It just kind of inherently accelerates any any kind of extreme experience which is provided by online content. The algorithm just blindly works to provide you with more, 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 more. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's take uh, the one hand and then maybe we can talk about how misogyny and um, white supremacy are intertwined before people have to start going. All right. Pi, what's up? Oh, hey. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to share like a personal experience that just recently happened and I'm still trying to figure out like how to deal with that and how to you know, sort of resolve this. I I mean, if it's something that needs to be resolved, but I have a niece who's eight years old and she goes to school in the Midwest and she was visiting me. Um, I live in New York and, uh, you know, she was an eight-year-old girl likes to put on makeup and she was putting makeup on where she was like making her skin lighter than what it is. And she looks in the mirror and says, I'm not white. And I got confused for a second. I'm like, why is this eight-year-old cares about that she's not white and then i realized like in her school all the children are white and she is like you know because that is like the most common identity there and that's those are that's what her friends are so i think because they talk about being white she's trying to identify with them like you know the thing with nationality is that it's something that everybody can take but with this colorism is that you know i mean what is white but Everybody wants to identify with it. You know, me, most people want to identify because it's something that's also celebrated. And I feel like 
what you said to algorithms is that they amplify because we ourselves amplify that because that that's what we're raised to believe in so many different ways like culture and everything so yeah Teddy did you want to say something about that or yeah actually um so uh years back I had a a friend of mine who was a graduate student here at A&M uh Texas A&M and um she she was originally from El Paso and uh she's Latina both her uh parents are well her her mother was uh born in Mexico um her dad was um white and he I can't remember where he was from but anyway so where she grew up in El Paso um she was like a light-skinned Hispanic girl and she was always you know this is her telling me this she was always kind of identified as as white kind of by her kind of um the people that she lived with like she was always kind of viewed as a as a as a white person essentially and um and so she said i remember when she came to texas and m as a graduate student um she was suddenly very aware of actually how brown she was and that she was definitely not white within this context because texas a&m is like kind of in the middle of texas it's like predominantly white um and she would be in these classrooms and meeting rooms as a grad student kind of often the only um sometimes the only woman and very often the only woman of color and so there's a a real kind of the context of of that kind of of whiteness and what whiteness is is so malleable depending on the the situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right and so i think um for a lot of especially white folks that um like don't have any experience within communities of color or haven't engaged with uh, and talked with or um with um people of different backgrounds different communities of color that's one thing that they just most white folks are not aware of is is how whiteness as a identity can be like i think that was talked about earlier can kind of be bestowed on on people in different circumstances Rihanna, I think Rihanna said she was bullied in uh, Barbados for for being white or whatever. They considered her uh, white where she grew up. Interesting. Yeah, it just goes to show like how malleable and constantly shifting that concept is, right? Before, I believe Italians weren't considered white. I think Irish weren't considered white. Oh my God! The right loves to bring up the Irish anytime they talk about slavery yeah. and the indigenous in, in, in yeah. of white Irish, as if it was comparable to chattel slavery. It's like the most annoying thing. Yeah, there's there's a really good guy on Twitter, Liam Hogan, who who who's done loads of work on this. Um, he he's constantly sort of batting away the you know the, the Irish weren't considered white myth and the the Irish slavery myth I mean it, there, there's there's a I mean in um, like Theodore Allen's the invention of the white race and a lot of work that's been done on the construction of whiteness uh, you know Barbara Fields and amazing people like that yeah sure um, people were brought into the category of white and and so on and so forth but like the, the way the way the right and reactionaries talk about the, the Irish thing it's it's incredibly misleading but um, yeah I 
I feel like one of the things one of the things to hit when we talk. I mean, I feel firstly incredibly unqualified to talk about it. The idea of like a, a a little girl being sort of worried by the idea that she's not white at school. I find that just incredibly upsetting and depressing. But you know, I I don't want to comment on it really because I feel completely unqualified to. But one of the things I think we need to kind of remember with the with with how whiteness is framed in in white culture is that it's it's always seen as the default it's the vanilla it's the standard setting it's 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 contentless you know white is kind of not a color it's the absence of color and it's everybody else who's who's got color and if you're not white you're kind of you're sort of diverging from a neutral template you know and that's where so much of the the culture war harping on about like um you know cultural issues like recasting and stuff like that so much of that is what it's really about underneath all the stuff about oh you know you're not allowed to be white and proud anymore and so on and they're trying to make everything woke underneath all that what they're really defending is that assumption of white as the like the standard yeah yeah i mean just like in little things like uh band-aids right when they made band-aids that are like different skin tone colors i thought it was pretty neat because it's not like i have walked around desperate for a band-aid that matches my exact skin tone but it just like you realize in those moments like oh you know i guess that is why that is that color because it's supposed to match a generic like skin color and not be so obvious except for on me i mean i'm much darker than that color so <laughs> it never like um was subtle when i had a band-aid on right so just to have like band-aids in different skin colors feels nice um when you go shopping for like leggings and there's like the nude color it's very hard to find like one that is like matching your skin to i I don't know maybe i'm getting into things that guys are like (laughs) i don't know what you're talking about but (laughs) getting into girl stuff (laughs) (laughs) all right maybe you haven't had these issues when you've gone uh shopping for like uh tights but trust me it's an issue if if, because i would and just buy like sheer black tights if I wanted like a sheer legging because you can't find one that's like skin colored or maybe you can but I didn't look hard enough it's like very light skin colored or like darker brown like it's harder to find anyways I'm going off on a weird tangent you're not here to talk about me and shopping for tights if I could back up a little um to the dis- yeah, last part of the discussion about um, you know the the myth of Irish enslavement, uh, that kind of thing. So what that plays into, um, you know, very anti-black, very anti-African um, uh, responses to um, to movements, reparatory movements um, in relation to um, slavery as it was practiced in the, in the North Atlantic. So the, the racialization of African people and then their enslavement and then their reduction in law um, to the status of chattel. And so whenever um, people like myself, um, Jamaican, whose you know, society, Jamaican society is... 90% they uh, descended from uh, people who were forcibly um, transported and enslaved on this island. And so whenever we raise 
um, you know, issues of reparatory justice for that kind of thing, we usually get the response of, oh, but they, the Irish were also enslaved, or there was a time when Italians weren't treated um, particularly well. And I think when people, when certain elements on the right do that, what they're trying to do is to downplay and dismiss you know, the specific and unique horrors of um, transatlantic slavery, enslavement, how it was practiced um, in this part of the world where, um, yes, yeah, slavery has existed, um, unfortunately, across this planet for a very long time, um, but um, the enslavement of Africans in the North Atlantic, in Europe, in the Caribbean, in North America, um, it marked a specific... Um, unique form of enslavement where the status of slave was legally passed down through the blood. So that if your father was enslaved on a plantation um, in Jamaica, for instance, when you were born, you were also automatically um, a slave. And that would be the case for your children and their children, um, etc. So that was particularly unique um, to the system as it was practiced in this part of the world. And so when the descendants of enslaved Africans speak about it, speak about the unique horrors, you get this sort of um, downplaying of what happened to say, oh, the Irish were also enslaved and, and you know, Italians at some point weren't um, treated particularly well. So I, know, I can't remember who it was who said um, they're not in a position um, to necessarily speak on it. Um, I'm in a position to speak on it um, as a black Jamaican whose primary academic studies focused on transatlantic uh, slavery. That's before I sold out and became a liar. Um, but, 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 but yes, it's a form of um, when you hear this thing about from the right about um, Irish enslavement, um, it's a form of um, it's, it's meant to silence um, black people who speak about um, reparatory justice for the specific um, crime, this unique crime committed against um, Africans in this part of the world. It's also particularly egregious when hearing that from the right in the context of the Caribbean and chattel slavery there. When you look at the history of the United States, a lot of the slave codes that were written and the laws that were intended um, to further uh, establish white supremacy within particularly the South, a lot of those laws were written directly into response to slave revolts, revolts by yeah. the enslaved people in Haiti and other places within the Caribbean. I mean, so like when they say that, that when they compare it, it's just, it's just historically just, I don't even know the right word, just disgusting when they make those claims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's intriguing. Right. <laughs> it's intriguing. Yeah, it's always good yep, to hear. Yeah. Sorry, go on, yeah. Jack. No, I was just, you know, registering agreement with all of that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree too. And uh, 
it's always good to hear like uh, people point out like these right wing tactics of like soft peddling or downplaying certain things for a specific agenda. So that's very um, just good to know and good to hear pointed out. Um, but now I thought maybe we can just touch on the topic of how white supremacy and misogyny are like so interlinked. If if you're not speaking, if you could just mute your microphone because then we can hear like every little movement and then that gets distracting. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I was uh, reading this thread by this um, extremism researcher and like I found that person's threads a bit kind of off and odd before and uh, they were like, I don't want to, I don't want to say who it is or shame anyone, but the gist of it was like, yeah, 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 you know, we know that the guy has Nazi tattoos. He's talking about the Allen shooter. Um, but what I'm more interested in, what's more unique is uh, the fact that uh, there's like this through line of misogyny that's running through the, like all of his posts. And I thought to myself, like, that's not really anything new. There's like an undercurrent of misogyny in so much like of what the far right and white supremacists nowadays uh, do put out. And I thought that uh, we could talk about that a bit. I mean, I have a quote from Andrew Anglin. I mean, there's many quotes, but let me just see. Right. He says, the fact is, when you give women rights, they destroy absolutely everything around them, no matter what other variable is involved. Even if you become the ultimate alpha male, some stupid bitch will still ruin your life. And that's Andrew Anglin of the Daily Stormer. And there's so many more examples of that, too. They're like... Yeah, so I thought, uh, does anyone else want to chime in on that? I mean, it's just shit people say. That's how I see it. And they should just not be celebrated, I feel. Well, no, it's uh, it's more than just shit people say. It's like a very strong undercurrent. It's like a theme, right? And so I think it's important to recognize the themes and the work of extremists so that we can recognize them again. Hi, Ina. Teddy? Who's speaking? This is Aaron. Sorry. Oh. Hi, Erin. Hi. Hi, everybody. How's Good. it going? Um, I've been thinking a lot about patriarchy lately, um, and it's crossover with white supremacy and other systems in general. Um, I feel like what what's been missing from a lot of conversations I've had with men about this is the distinction between the system itself. So the system of patriarchy versus the individual. And that comes up so much in all discussions of systems and how they act on us. And I noticed that men will often conflate patriarchy with misogyny. Um, and so it's important to yeah. distinguish these things, you know, make sure that when we're talking about the system itself, 
that it's, you know, that that we're all vulnerable to the system and we're all vulnerable to white supremacy. We're all vulnerable to patriarchy. It's just going to impact us in different ways. And how we become responsible for our behavior within those systems is really, you know, the judgment of our character and everything. Um, And, you know, I focus a lot on trad wives and trad wife culture, and I follow (laughs) these horrible people on Instagram and I, stalk them and um boy they really represent the crossover of those two systems and capitalism of course um but right i think what's been interesting for me as someone who kind of identifies as a housewife somebody who's at home and as a wife with those being the only <laughs> really accurate descriptors outside of um you know any sort of culture i, I don't identify really otherwise but it's something that i think about and i think a lot of women think about in their life when they're doing something that is super traditionally considered their gender role it goes through our head like what does this feel like what am you know how am i behaving in a system right now am i being responsible is this fair like a lot of those questions um and so i'd love to hear you guys talk talk about those things so I, I had a professor early on who, uh, well, he, what, he would, what he taught was that um, both white supremacy and um, various forms of um, misogyny, uh, that they both applied the same hierarchical frame, um, which is that, um, you know, certain people are based on certain uh, biological characteristics um, are suited to rule, are suited to be at the top of the hierarchy, and then other kinds of people um, deservedly um, belong uh, at the bottom of the hierarchy, right? So that, uh, so that if you take white supremacy, uh, for instance, I mean, you have to really explain what that is. It's basically right there in the term. So the hierarchy should be um, white people, however that is defined um, at the top and, uh, you know, various other so-called races uh, uh, below um, with, you know, people of African descent, um, dark-skinned people um, at the lowest, occupying the lowest uh, rung. And what my professor used to say is that um, you can see a similar frame um, being, being applied to um, the sort of man, woman, male, female dynamic that some people think uh, for some reason um, that men have a, a biological, I don't know, right um, to rule. And so therefore women uh, must also be, must always be subordinate. And he also linked it to, um, he was dealing specifically um, with the sort of sociological situation um, in, in Jamaica. Um, where a lot of homophobia here is coded in very, in very anti-female terms, um, so that one of the worst things you can say to a man in Jamaica is to say "yo boy, I go like a girl," which means, uh, um, which means, young man, why are you acting like a woman or like a woman would? And so, and yeah, so the same they, in Pakistan as well. Yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. And so merely 
so so a man somebody who is identified as male merely behaving um in the way a, a woman who is a, a woman is supposed to or is expected to behave then that automatically lowers him um in the in in, in the hierarchy and so what my professor was saying is that is that um being female or that which is identified as traditionally female um, is coded as necessarily inferior or necessarily subordinate to that which is uh, coded or considered or considered male. And he was saying that it, he was saying that you can see that the the, the the similar, if not the same, but a similar frame was being applied when you were dealing with um, white supremacy, which is really a system of um, was really a racial uh, caste system. Um, so yeah, I fully agree that there is not just a link, um, but white supremacy, racism on the one hand, and um, you know various forms of misogyny and sexism. I have from my I've always thought of that those those two things are being you know two halves of the same coin. Yeah, definitely, and also I feel like. <laughs> White supremacy relies uh, on, I guess, white women to kind of create and further their supreme race, right? So a lot of misogyny comes in play in that, right? They don't like when white women have choices of non-white men because they're no longer producing pure white babies. They don't like when uh, women uh, prefer to prioritize their career or their education because they're not focused on producing pure white babies. white babies. Exactly. And you hear echoes of that in people that are much more mainstream and celebrated in, and invited to speak at places like Stanford, unfortunately, like Jordan fucking Peterson, you know? Or, or, or Douglas Murray. Or Douglas Murray, yeah. Who? Yeah. But, you know, Michaela it's, Peterson taking up the mantle, really, from her position is is mm -hmm. really interesting. It's, it's not surprising. It's almost, like, created. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, you couldn't almost ask for a better... A better partner um, than a very attractive young daughter who's ultimately just completely willing to do whatever it takes to fit into the trad wife mold and gain her followers yeah. and bring people along with her and wear her red lipstick and yeah, piss yeah. me off. <laughs> <laughs> She's very good at it too. I mean, I think she, why does her red lipstick in particular piss well, you off? Um, Red lipstick has some pretty interesting feminist roots um, as a really as a symbol of power. One of the few symbols mm -hmm. of power that women have in certain time periods. Um, it's considered very sexual and very racy. And so wearing red lipstick can be often the cheapest and only way to be sexual, um, you know, mm -hmm. in times of war, in times of poverty, um, some, sometimes the only thing you can afford is red lipstick. Um, mm -hmm. and so for it to be sort of co-opted by 
these um, very conservative, very backwards women who mm. want to put who, who want to basically be using it as a as this weird cosplay, which I think is what's so strange about that version of Tradwife is is like the intense transphobia, the intense white supremacy, um, but trying to do it with a modern spin. And I think that's exactly like what you guys were talking about with um, just the the right in general, having this really strong online presence and rebranding themselves and trying to kind of like appeal to a younger generation. And these girls are definitely yeah. doing that. Like they're attractive and they're cosplaying in eras and genres and aesthetics that are really appealing. It's like, that's why I kind of play around with that identity a little bit because it's, I think there's nothing wrong with the cosplay part of it. It's just that people don't realize that's what they're doing. And they start to really right. identify with like, I care about my cleaning products. And it's like, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right no, no no you're supposed to ironically dress like a 50s housewife not really <laughs> dress like a 50s. yeah yeah no i hear you yeah 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 they take betty page and they turn it into i don't know what like something not her at all but yeah exactly um yeah or as you know peterson says like red lipstick it's like women evolving to mimic ripe fruit or signaling orgasms, just like bizarre bullshit yeah. um, that everyone can hear more of if they want to check out my recent uh, Evo Psych episodes. Yes, that was awesome. Um, and it, it, it's very <laughs> weird to hear him say that and then see his daughter. Right, right. That's the juxtaposition that I can never understand. If you think women are signaling arousal when they're wearing lipstick then why are you sitting there always with your daughter who's wearing a heck of a lot of lipstick i don't i don't see how that's consistent or maybe it's consistent in a weird way maybe i don't know sorry yeah thinking about those that relationship always creeps me the fuck out but and uh <laughs> yeah she sends like pictures to her dad and like sexy lobster costumes or you know, weird shit going on there but sorry teddy you've had your hand up for a while well that's a hell of a lead-in um i don't know how um <laughs> i was super distracted um no i think uh, uh i think uh it sounds weird but misogyny and patriarchy and the role that they play in white supremacy and far-right authoritarian movements is like Kind of one of my favorite subjects to talk about and discuss. I think it's one of the most under-discussed subjects. Um, I really do like um, how um, Kenyatta laid it all out um, and their relationship. And I will say in a historical context, um, there's really great scholarship uh, that goes back to look at the role that white women played in establishing and maintaining white supremacy in the yeah. South, particularly and the, the role that gender played into that and how, uh, you know, when you talk about hierarchies, right, even within a patriarchy, if you're a white woman, that automatically lifts you up above all other people of color. And so there is such a long history of white women kind of 
be being willing to uh, uh, stand on that, and as long as it secures their place in their safety, right? Even if it harms everyone else underneath them. Um, and I think of, of particular interest, if you want to look at how they enforced it, um, the speaking of scholarship, there's a lot of really interesting history about um, the role that white women played in maintaining slavery and the plantations during the Civil War when all these men have left. It was left to all these white women to basically run these plantations. And in some instances, did it almost more brutally than their white male counterparts um, because of uh, the role that gender played into it. And they, um, so yeah, there's some really interesting um, scholarship going back a long ways about that. And that, the kind of white women's role in enforcing white supremacy and um, their part in holding up the patriarchy within U.S. culture kind of, there's like, Example, example, uh, like, you know, among probably the most famous is, is the murder of Emmett Till, right? And um, the role white women played in that. Um, and so, and and if you look at um, a lot of the history of, of lynching in the United States, um, kind of specifically between like 1880 and the 1930s, um, there's, uh, I think, the... Um, uh, African-American History Museum I think, in Alabama has like a really great resources around this. If you look and dig into a lot of those lynchings, at the root of so many of them is um, the basically the purity of white women. Right? A lot of it is um, about black men interacting with white women and that getting them killed or getting the black men killed. Um, so yeah, it's, it's um, and also in the modern context, I think um, there's a lot of examples of, of similarly of, of the role that white women play within kind of far right white supremacist movements. I mean, there's a yes, lot of, yes, yes. Um, especially, you know, there's a very specific role that, that white women play, play within the neo-Nazi movement. Um, there's very prominent white women within that movement. They play a very specific kind of role of, uh, because of how in, integral the patriarchy and misogyny is to those movements. And so enforcing those gender norms uh, and having a woman do it is very kind of integral to, to, to that power structure. So anyway. Yeah, that was very well said and agree hundred percent with everything you said. Yeah. It's um, the, the interconnections between uh, patriarchy and white supremacy as interlocking systems uh, they're, they're just essential to fascism because fascism is about you know in, in its fundamental imperative it's about defending those systems um, from you know whether whether it's challenge from below or whether it's uh, instability from uh, um, you know problems with capitalism it's it's about defending those systems and shoring them up and you see that in far-right movements i mean we've talked on the on the podcast a lot about how um you know there are women in these movements and they have these paradoxical conditions so we just recently on one of the episodes we were talking about um uh, sydney watson and elijah schaefer and you know she's she's um she's engaged completely in the same project at him as him but at the same time she's in an environment where she's uh uh, you know, like um, like the women at Fox News who are um, subjected to the hostile 
misogynistic work environment in uh, in uh, you know, working for Tucker Carlson and everything. It's um, Sidney Watson subject to sexual harassment and uh, Elijah Schaefer sexually harassing his fellow uh, far rightists because they're because they're women, etc. It's uh, and it creates these it creates these uh, paradoxical situations. Teddy bringing up the Civil War is really interesting because that's something. I've been reading a lot about the, the American Civil War recently, actually, and I'm fascinated by the various ways in which um, the Confederacy is a proto-fascistic society. I think that's an interest. Uh, personally, anyway, I mean, I'm far from an expert, but personally, I think that's an interesting lens to look at it through. And um, yeah, white women absolutely integral to um, the slave system in the South, uh, even more so during the war, of course, for, for fascinating reasons. And I've I read a really interesting book called uh, Confederate Reckoning. I'm blanking on the title of the author, but it's, it's a really good book. And it's about, part, partly anyway, it's about how women in the in the Confederate States of America started altering government policy and uh, the, even the structure of the Confederate government by making demands on the Confederate state, uh, you know, for things like welfare and, uh, and because, uh, you know, they're, they're men, so to speak, were off at war. And at, and at the same time, it was integral to the ideology of slavery in the South that you had this special thing, Southern womanhood, by by which, of course, they meant they went white Southern womanhood, and it was on this elevated, almost mystical, um, religious level, you know, and it had to be protected, uh, and all this stuff. So, yeah, and you, you you see the same in various fascist societies. Nazi Germany has this. Um, elevation, you know, of German womanhood and so on, and and at the same time, of course, it's deeply, deeply based upon, uh, or, and it's so extreme, it's almost a parodic version of patriarchal patriarchy, you know, the housewife and everything like that. So those interrelationships, uh, I mean, I don't really have anything to say about it except that, yeah, it's a, uh, it's really interesting. I'm going to have to um, call it a night, guys. Thanks for coming. And uh, this has been a really great conversation, and I hope you carry on without me, and I'll be listening to the rest of it. But it's late here in uh, in Merry England, okay? <laughs> so I'll say good night to you all. Thanks, Jack. It was lovely talking to you. Good night, all. Yeah. So um, great points, everyone. Erin, uh, did you want to say something? I was just thinking a little about the um, the ways that when you're having a conversation with a certain person, like in one area, say it's patriarchy and you can tell you've hit a wall. I think I see it a lot in the trad wives I watch on Instagram. They get in the comments section and the comments are really interesting because you'll see a lot of men in their comment sections talking about how hopeless they feel that they'll never meet a traditional woman who's willing to s submit and all of these things. And then the trad wives jump in and start supporting them and showering them with all the love and all the affection that they, you just know they're not getting <laughs> rightfully in the rest of the world. And it's really strange. It's like no other comment section that you've ever been. Um, the reinforcement from both sides of both white supremacy and patriarchy um, is is like it's just written um, so clearly that you can't unsee it and it sometimes feels like in conversations where you kind of feel like the blindness from the other person is really strong um, it can be helpful to use the other system as a way to break through that I think if you're talking about patriarchy sometimes it's more helpful 
to use white supremacy because maybe that is so obviously different and easy to kind of see like how are you a part of white supremacy might be easier to see for somebody than how am I a part of patriarchy um Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what's interesting is that a lot of these, um, like I, I did an episode a lot, uh, like many years ago, I think 2017 or something. Like we cheekily titled it "Fashy Feminism," I think it was called, and uh, we talked about uh, people like Lauren Southern, and uh, at the time there was Tara McCarthy, who was like a part. Um, she, I think she had like South Asian or Indian heritage, but she was like a full on neo-Nazi who was against race mixing pretty openly. Jordan Peterson went on her show to complain about cultural Marxists also. Um, and we talked about how like they think that by joining these movements, they're kind of like securing their place but it always comes for them too. And because there had been at the time that we did this episode, there had been a bunch of like videos from these women talking about how they're getting harassment from their scenes, from their audiences uh, for not being like, you know, the trad wives that they praise. And at the time, Lauren Southern hadn't had any kids. She wasn't married. And so they were like, you know, bothering her about that and just saying really misogynistic things and obviously fashy feminism is not a thing because it's not really feminism if it's fashy right. but you know yeah that that, they, that that you're free from from the system well i can't i can't be a part of patriarchy i'm a feminist um it's it's completely blind to the fact that it's a sea that we're swimming in and that nobody is free from it nobody's not breathing in patriarchal error and and that that's that's that responsibility part like yeah we're all here we're already here you're not you're not choosing to be a part of this i think uh, i heard language used that was a patriarchal male and and i think that's interesting because you do hear about people self-identifying as white supremacists but not as a patriarchal male um and that's basically because you yeah, you're not aware of that so much. Um, and the system is so clearly mm-hmm. damaging to everybody that nobody really thinks that, that they're touched by it. It's it's weird. Yeah, I mean, I only hear, like, Peterson and stuff, like, talk about it ironically or joke about it not being a real thing. Oh, maybe she's opposing the patriarchy. Like, oh, psh, it's not really a thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. They're... And, uh, wise men very <laughs> only the, the smartest the smartest men um, so, so it's, it's interesting how some of these things uh, reproduce themselves in um, non-white societies and spaces um, mm-hmm. so for instance in, in a place like Jamaica or a place like Uganda or Kenya right where you have this um, sort of, you know, virulent um, uh, anti-gay uh, political sentiment. And what they do, and, and that is, as I've said before, bo- all bound up with um, with misogynistic ideas um, about, you know, that that a gay man 
must be a man who wants to be a woman and is therefore, you know, making himself uh, inferior. But, I mean, going back to the idea that, you know, a lot of these approaches and um, expressions, you know, are, are there to reinforce, um, I wouldn't call it fascism necessarily, maybe quasi-fascism. Um, but if you look at some of the, uh, of, you know, some of what's happening in, as I said, countries like, like Jamaica or Uganda or, 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 or Kenya, you will see politicians talking about protecting um, the Jamaican family or protecting the virtues of the Jamaican woman or the Kenyan woman or the Ugandan woman, you know, from these um, degenerate um, foreign LGBT um, QA uh, influences. And, mm-hmm. and, and so you find, so a lot of these societies, you find, you find, you find is, you will get a you will get a terribly um, oppressive uh, law passed in uh, passed in, in in Uganda, um, you know, an anti-gay law. And if you actually listen to what these politicians are saying, they are saying that uh, homosexuality is un-African and foreign to Uganda, and so therefore um, it is an imposition. Um, from the outside meant to destroy, you know, traditional um, Ugandan values and, uh, and family structures, um, etc. And in that way, they can actually better oppress people. And we get this, in, we get this here in Jamaica a lot where uh, people who campaign or brave enough to campaign for, uh, you know, equal rights for LGBT uh, uh, people in, in this country, they're often accused of being, you know, um, a fifth column, you know, um, representatives of some uh, foreign, some, you know, demonic, evil foreign agenda. Uh, right. Uh, That's happened to me personally because in 2014, I wrote this children's book uh, called My Chacha is Gay, which means my uncle is gay. And it was uh, set in Pakistan. And, you know, there's no mention of religion or anything like that. It's just, you know, a little boy who, you know, his uncle is the greatest uncle ever. And he doesn't understand why people don't accept him or they're rude to him. And he just wishes that they would because his uncle is the very best uncle in the world. And that's really how simple the message was. And um, it got read in schools in my province here in Canada. And it was, it like caused an outrage. Like I still, I get almost nine years later, hate mail to do with this children's book. And I was called like, you know, Satan's daughter. People wished like AIDS on me. They said I was destroying the Muslim family. I was destroying... um, the brains of Pakistani children. I was corrupting them. And uh, there's this guy who's a fan of um, Jordan Peterson, this uh, Islamic YouTuber. I think he's called Daniel Hakikaju or something like that. Terrible, shitty, shitty guy. Um, he came across my book just a couple years ago. And so I think he posted about how that's like worse than the Salman Rushdie's satanic verses and just like you know it's it's kind of scary to hear that because you 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 know the kind of response that satanic verses had 
and ultimately got him stabbed just recently. And, um, you know, they were saying that this is way worse than that could ever be. And people threatened to sue the school boards here in Ontario. And then, you know, the school just like shut it down. Like they never, ever talked about it again. It could have been like a good part of the curriculum. First, the teachers were so receptive and everybody loved it. And then no silence, shut it down. They had too many complaints. And so I completely personally feel that uh, demonization on a very personal level. Like it's scary, scary shit. Uh, about, I want to say it was in 2014. It might not have been in 2014. It might have been the year before or the year after. You know, I'm getting old, so I don't remember things. Um, it, we had here in Jamaica, you know, a national meltdown over, um, over, a, over, it, it was literally like three paragraphs in a, in a home economics Sorry, a home and family life textbook um, for second formers. Sorry. And by second formers, I mean um, students in, I think, the American and Canadian equivalent would be grade eight. Um, so mm-hmm. three paragraphs in, in, a, in a text um, for kids in grade eight, um, which in Jamaica would be high school and not middle school. And um, the paragraphs basically just said, I kid you not, gay people exist. Um, some people are gay, some people aren't. And yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that resulted in um, it resulted in a debate, like a three-day-long debate in Parliament. Um, the, the Ministry of Education ordered all the books um, removed. The... The, the the leadership of the Jamaica Council of Churches and the Jamaica Umbrella Group of Churches and the Lawyers Christian Fellowship and the Love March movement, they're all on TV and radio nonstop for what felt like about three months. And uh, yeah, really over three paragraphs in a textbook that weren't even all that controversial. I just right. gave exist. They're human beings, and they deserve, um, and they, and they deserve certain rights and freedoms. It, the, the Ministry of Education ended up making new unnecessary regulations just to prevent these three paragraphs from ever, I don't know, sullying um, Jamaican students um, uh, uh, ever again. So it's this kind of, this kind of um, freak out and overreaction and. Constantly, what it's meant to do is to is to message to certain people or certain kinds of people that they are to know their place and that they are, they are not to step out of their place. So sometimes, so 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 the 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 issue with Jamaica is that this country is not nearly not nearly as homophobic as some of the news reports from outside of Jamaica would lead you to be, to believe, right? So, um, so like in the last maybe 20, 25 years, um, so I'm, 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 I turn 40 next year and, uh, and I can actually see a, a difference um, from when I was a kid in high school till now. Um, the cultures actually in Jamaica has actually changed um, a whole lot. It's become much more tolerant. So, 
So we now have we now have um um you know openly gay people um in the media. We now have um very public dedicated organizations for um J Flag. Um, we change and those organizations of um, LG, open out LGBTQ uh, Jamaicans who are lobbying um, constantly, advocating for their for their own rights. So Jamaica has actually changed significantly. But when you have that kind of change, there is always, you know, a great backlash uh, uh, yeah, against yeah. it, and and it's always about protecting almost this mythical um this mythical you know conception of either the, the family or the state or here it manifests itself in people in certain groups and they're usually fundamentalist christian groups um saying that you can't be gay you can't be trans uh you can't be bisexual uh, etc and be jamaican um at the same time incidentally their view also yeah, is that, that yeah, it's, it's yeah, an it's outside also, thing like a western thing like homosexuality is not a thing yes. that yes. belongs mm-hmm. in pakistan it's something that i was corrupting people's minds with this western influence and just nonsense and and and, and here it also manifests itself in the idea that you can't be a non-christian and also be authentically uh, Jamaican. So I was raised. Oh, yeah. So my family is Muslim, and um, and um, like the only kind of discrimination I've ever faced or I've ever had to deal with in Jamaica as a, a as a black Jamaican man um, who is, you know, not poor, um, and I am. Um, you know, I'm cis and I'm straight identifying so that in so that in my society there isn't anything about me that immediately marks me out as different. Um, but when when people like sometimes in my workplace, uh, when people get when people realize so I, I had a had a situation maybe a month or so ago. Uh, my mom visited me at work. And um, and my mom is, I wouldn't say that she is a super traditional Muslim woman, but she was wearing hijab that day. And um, so there are people in the office who suddenly realized <laughs> that the lawyer, um, at least his mom, is Muslim. And that brings out, you know, um, the, the fundamentalist Christians who are just right. going to you and that kind of thing. So um, there is there, there there is a certain faction of fundamentalist Christians in Jamaica who try to narrow the definition of what it means to be to be authentically Jamaican. And I and I've always been fascinated about how that actually mirrors what you see happening in the United States, for instance, and what you see happening in the United Kingdom and other parts of Europe, um, where they will say, for instance, that an authentic Englishman um, can't, can't have brown skin or black skin or yeah, and right. certainly can't be Muslim or, or Hindu. I mean, the other day, I think it was, um, it was that idiot 
uh, historian David Starkey, who was saying that that the current Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, doesn't understand what it means to be British just because uh, Rishi Sunak <laughs> is is a brown is a yeah. brown uh, Hindu, and to tell you the truth, I didn't shed any tears <laughs> for Sunak because. Because that right, man is right. a Tory and he's been involved in, you know, yeah. yes. But but yeah, but that's the kind of thing. I'm fascinated by how yeah. how that is right. mirrored in 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 so-called third world societies. And it's been my experience in um spent some time in in Uganda and Kenya, and it's really the the the, the same sort of thing: homosexuality, yeah. Yeah. um, transness, um, you know, basically any kind of queerness is. Is on Kenyan or on Uganda? Yeah, sounds very familiar. All right, I'm gonna move on uh, just because I'm gonna try and uh, wrap this up. So we'll hear from Teddy and maybe a couple more questions after that, and then we'll close. Hi, Teddy. Hey. Yeah, I was just gonna touch on something that he brought up about uh, the Western perception of Jamaica, and I think there's a a critique I have of particular kind of Western media. Um, and um, it also I see it among the left and in progressive spaces of when things, especially in places like Uganda, with what is going on there with the anti-LGBTQ uh, legislation and all that, there's a framing within Western media often that I see of that, you know, this is the U.S. Christian right or the U.S. right kind of exporting hate. That's kind of a, a really common mm -hmm. narrative. And while, yes, the U.S. Christian right does try to exert its influence throughout the world, like, I think there's a, I think it's a real problem in the kind of U.S. media that it portrays um, countries like Uganda. And, um, and I think I've seen it in the context of, like, Romania and also in South America, that like the U.S. Christian right is exporting these values as if there's not far right fundamentalist right. Uh, religious movements within those countries that have their own uh, like political makeup. Right, they're, they're in the, independent of whatever it is the fundamentalist Christian right in the U.S. is doing. Teddy, yeah. let me help you. We have we have agency, and we are making these bad decisions for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I think, but I just say that because I've seen that kind of narrative pop up in progressive and left leaning spaces, and I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I used stuff. to get frustrated uh, about that whenever there was like an Islamic terror attack, too. And to some extent, like absolutely, we should talk about causes like racism and alienation and all of that, but also acknowledge that um, these people have agency and, uh, you know, it wasn't all like, I'm an immigrant, I've experienced racism and I didn't turn to those types of ideologies. So it is kind of offensive and condescending when people try to put it all on things like that and just act like, oh, you know, these people of color, they just don't have any agency or, you know, the West must have influenced them to do that. Yeah. It's very U.S. centric, which is like, 
part of why I love listening to you and of course, um, decoding and so many of you guys that are doing great podcasts are not in the U S it's really (laughs) nice. Thank you. All right. Does anybody else have any uh, questions or comments before we start winding down? You can just like raise your hand or whatever request to speak. All right. All right. If nobody else uh, has anything to say, then I guess thank you everyone um, for joining. This was a wonderful, wonderful chat. Uh, I always have fun at Twitter spaces, but like I find it a bit chaotic to set up all the tech issues in the beginning and being like an obsessive editor on my podcast, I find it really annoying that whenever I put out a recording of a Twitter space, it's like sometimes like five minutes of dead space while we're trying to figure out the logistics of this damn thing. Um, But other than that, like it's a very uh, different experience to podcasting. I get to talk to a bunch of people and uh, yeah, that's so great. And talk, talking to people live, it's super fun. So thank you to everyone who participated and who listened. And uh, yeah, I'll see you out there in the Twitterverse or um, or you can email or come leave me messages on Patreon. And you can find all that information on my Twitter banner. So take care, everyone, and this will be recorded so you can listen to the beginning if you missed it. And bye-bye.